it's a corduroy shirt. I've never had a corduroy shirt before. Oh, it's very comfortable. It's really comfortable. I might get some corduroy trousers. And can you get corduroy shoes and socks? Because it really is perhaps the most comfortable material I've ever been involved in. Uh, Kelly Betts, who uh, works here occasionally, has taken a photograph of me and uh, we'll put it on the Facebook page. Do you have a look at my shirt? Because it's what you want to start the morning with. Oh, also... I'll get this picture put on the Facebook page. Someone yesterday drew up an excellent um, little portrait of Jonathan Vernon Smith. Right? It was brilliant. They've done one of me. I'm not convinced they've spent anywhere near as much time doing mine as they have Jonathan's. I retweeted it last night and loads of people went, well, it's a nice picture of Stan Laurel, but where are you? I'll, I'll get that. It'll be on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash BBC3CR. Lots on the show this morning, as we always have, uh, including why the government wants to recruit one million people to become dementia friends. A Buckinghamshire heart transplant patient calls for opt-out donor system for organ donation. Do you agree? Should it just be assumed that your organs are up for donation unless you opt out? Or do you disagree with that? And our reporter, Justin Dealey, uh, our, our cat correspondent is on the hunt for an aggressive cat in Wingrave. Do your neighbour's cats drive you mad? And now, I've got a cat. I have a lot of sympathy for cats. But maybe they poo in your flower pots. They do. I've seen them do it. Maybe they come and annoy you. Are your neighbour's cats driving you mad? Get in touch in lots of ways. The Facebook page I've mentioned already. Facebook.com forward slash BBC3CR. You can text 81333, starting your text 3CR. Oh, and this is always the best way to get in touch, isn't it? You can give me a call, 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. And remind me later on to tell you about um, my uh, uh, row I had in the street. I had a row in the street yesterday with a very noisy workman. I, I just want to put it to you so you can see if you think... It, I want to know if I was out of order, if I was in the, the right. We'll, we'll talk about that later on. Now, the government wants you to consider becoming a dementia friend, someone who can spot signs of the illness and help to train sufferers. They're planning to train a million people by 2015. It's part of plans to raise awareness of the condition, which affects nearly 700,000 people. Prime Minister David Cameron has said dementia is a national crisis and awareness of it is shockingly low. The idea is to help make communities and everyday places such as supermarkets more accessible to people with the condition. Paul Dunnery is from the Alzheimer's Society in East Anglia. Joins me now. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Uh, the, the government wants us to change the way we think about people with dementia. How do you think people with dementia are perceived now? Um, I think we still don't don't understand uh, the needs and the challenges that people with dementia face. I think what we've done very well over the last few years is raise awareness of the disease. So we, we talk about it, we're doing it now, it's on TV, we portray it in our uh, soap operas, etc. But in reality, people with dementia, st- we're still not very confident about helping people with dementia making sure they're okay, looking after them, including them. They, and our research and conversations with people with dementia shows that they don't feel confident themselves in going out on public transport, leisure, using bank shops, uh, leisure facilities, etc. 
I guess part of the problem is, Paul, that it is such an unpredictable condition, isn't it? So one minute you can be fine, and the next minute, as I had it with my granddad, you can be, you know, somewhere else completely different. Absolutely, of course, and that, and that's a real challenge, and that's what we, that's what we're trying to do in, in, and, and with the, the government and the prime minister are, are wanting us to train up a million people so that we people have that confidence to deal with it and understand that it isn't a condition, a set condition that um, is the same every day. So some people someday will be, feel, will be able to be more confident, the next day less so. And it's about spotting those signs, understanding it, and understanding it when people might need that extra help or when maybe people can be confident enough to do something for themselves. It, 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 this, is, this is trying to raise awareness, which is... Um, really important. So that Do you think this is an important scheme, then? Absolutely, It's yeah. not just a little bit of, of um, the government trying to put responsibility, you know, responsibility they should be taking onto the shoulders of the public? Um, I think we all have a responsibility to, to, to do this. I think, I think it's, it's our responsibility to look after our, our friends, our colleagues, um, our family who have dementia. I think we all need to take some responsibility to make sure that we look after people a little bit better. And this isn't just, this is further in hospitals, in care homes, it includes everybody. It's nearly, it's the 700,000 people who live with us with, who have dementia. Now, you mentioned uh, that, that sometimes sufferers feel, don't feel confident about going to the shops and places like that. What are, shop, what are people who work in shops not doing that would help those with dementia? I think sometimes they don't always give people the right time. Because um, so, so, sometimes if you're, you know, if, you're, you, if you're not very confident with your, your, your cash or you're, you're looking for something, they don't give people enough time to deal with things, especially the checkout can be a dreadful place if you, you know... Um, and it's, but it's you can understand, can't you, Paul? And uh, just to take their side for a second, that often these people are very rushed and they're kind of they're working and they're busy, and then suddenly what what they perceive as some you know doddery old so and so just taking taking up their time, it can be frustrating for them, can't it? Are you just saying that they should just be a little bit more patient? I think it's it's it's, it's, it's more than that. I think it's understanding that um, also these are still people with consumers and with, who want to who want to have mm. an active life as well. So actually, these are still potential customers, um, and it, and if they're not going to feel confident, they're not going to go into your shop and, and spend their money as well. So it's about making sure that they are, have the right environment and the staff who are skilled enough to deal with people um, and have the, who can get the, the the best benefit from the shop, and they can also um, uh, you know get into. Um, customer services as well. There's a similar scheme uh, apparently operates around the world, particularly in places like Japan. Have you heard about this? Yeah, and it's, a, it's, a re- we, it's, a re- it's worked really well. It's been a really positive outcome and really positive benefit for people there as well. Um, and this is part of an overall um, package of, the, of, of trying to develop dementia-friendly communities, working in hospitals and care homes as well, and the government's putting extra money into research as well. So it's a, it's a wider uh, spectrum of, of things um, about trying to create a more friendly um, so that people with dementia have the confidence to go out and be part of our communities. Listen, suppose I said my, my granddad had it and it was uh, it, it was at turns uh, heartbreaking and hilarious you know, and he was he was wonderful and every now and then his character will come out. It, it's a horrible condition if people at home are worried that they might uh, be suffering from it or a relative might be, where, where can they go? I think the best place would be to go if you, if you, if you are concerned about yourself and the very first place to go to is really to go to your GP and talk to your doctor about it because 
still one of the one of the challenges we've got is still that under 50 percent of people are still not diagnosed with dementia so if you are worried about it you must go to your gp and of course we can all if you if you can and you can access it go onto the alzheimer's society website because the information there um is second to none paul dunnery keep up the good work uh, it's paul dunnery there from the alzheimer's society in east anglia right the drawing of me by Aidan, the caricature I believe you call it, is up on the Facebook page. Go and have a look. Does it look like me or does it look like Stan Laurel? I appreciate the effort that he's put into it. It's not anywhere criticism. It's just, you know, hard to, to kind of judge. And for those of you who say that my corduroy shirt needs an iron, well, yes, it does. I got, I got sent it. I bought it online. It was delivered. I just took it out of the bag and wore it. That's the kind of guy I am. Right. Let's calm down a little bit now, shall we? It turns out, for some reason, I don't know why. I, I, sometimes I love this job, and sometimes I think, everybody, go away. I've created controversy um, simply by wearing my new shirt. Not because it's corduroy. It turns out that's well in. That's very 2012. Uh, but for two things. Because I ordered it online, OK? And I never, I never order clothes online. I, 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 I never do. I like to go into a shop and try things on. But I ordered it online. It was delivered to me yesterday. I took it out of the bag this morning. I put it on and wore it. I haven't washed it. And I haven't ironed it, okay? Those are the two key factors in this. I have not washed my shirt. I have not ironed it. Now, first off, my producer, Laura, was like, oh, you've not washed your shirt? Turns out her husband, who sounds, I'll be honest, a little bit weird, would, if they they buy anything new, he has to wash it before he wears it. Is that right? He buys something new, whether it's delivered or he buys it from a shop, he has to take it home and wash it. That's just crazy behaviour, isn't it? I'm being told socks... Underwear, shirts, sheets, everything. That's insane. You know that when you wa- start washing your clothes, that's it, you're, you're killing your clothes. That's what you're doing. Very rarely wash my sheets. That's for another discussion. So, and I don't iron, I've not ironed this shirt, I'm not really a big fan of ironing. So it brings up two things I'd like your opinions on this morning. Okay, dear listener. When you get new things, do you wash them? My wife, when we get new crockery, washes the crockery. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? It's new. It's been in a shop. It's going to be fine. No one's eaten on it. So, when you get new things, do you wash them? Or are you a weirdo if you do that? 08459 455 555. And can we just kind of accept the ironing? It's so unnecessary, isn't it? Yes, if I need to wear a smart shirt and a suit, I will very quickly throw the iron over the shirt. I'll do that. But ironing, really, it's not necessary. It's pointless. If none of us ironed anything, we'd all look a little bit crumpled. We'd all be at the same level. So, do you wash your new things, your new clothes, your new sheets, your new crockery? 08459 455 555. And do you iron things? Really, can we not just, for once and for all, throw our irons in the bin? It's the most depressing, pointless job of all. Are you one of those weirdos, I, I'm going to say it, perverts, who has to clean stuff, I mean, no, seriously, who has to clean stuff when you buy it new, like crockery and cutlery and clothes. So you buy a clean shirt from, like, The Gap or M&S, and you take it home and wash it. What do you, what do you think they're doing there? For goodness sakes, it's clean. You've bought it. It's clean. And can we once and for all agree that the iron, it, it, there is no need for the iron, it's, it's pointless. It, it serves no purpose. Yes, if you're wearing a smart shirt for an interview or something like that, okay, fine. 
you can iron that. But we don't need to iron our jeans. Some people, some depraved sickos, iron their socks and their pants. They do! And I'll admit, yes, it's nice putting on a warm pair of pants that have just been ironed, but there's no need for it. 08459-455-555. BBC Three Counties Radio, first from news. Now, a man from Buckinghamshire who has uh, become the longest surviving heart transplant patient in the UK says we should have an opt-out system for organ donation. John McCafferty was given five years to live when he had the operation in 1982. Now, 30 years later, he says a new scheme should be looked at to get more people to donate. BBC Three Counties reporter Jessica Cooper has been speaking to John at his home in Newport Pagnall. There's some lovely cards, and a lot of them are handmade cards uh, from friends all, all over. Well, this one here for example, was given to me by the wife of one of our old transplants who died after 10 years, but we still keep in touch. When I had my transplant in those early days, there was always a few people ahead of me, so they were my markers, so to speak, but unfortunately, they have since passed on. Let's rewind 30 years then to the point where you were about to be having your heart transplant. How did that come about? I felt unwell. I was coming back from a conference up in um, the north of England and um, I got home and the next morning I wasn't feeling too great because uh, I had a very, very fast uh, heart rate. After testing that at the John Radcliffe, they found out that I um, had cardiomyopathy. And as a result of that, of course, I was given told to go home and rest for six months and hopefully the heart might repair itself. Uh, unfortunately, the rest is history, and it didn't. Did you have a target age you were trying to reach? In those early days, when I was transplanted, it was still very much experimental um, surgery. The longest which had ever lived at that particular time had been two years. So the surgeon who had done my operation, he said, the most I'm expecting to give you is five years. Basically, I thought, well, five years is five years. At least I might be lucky enough to see my son grow up and then get married, and that's the only goal that I had. How does it feel then to be recognised and have this celebration planned for you at at Harefield Hospital where the transplant all started? It also marks the success of transplantation. Um, So it's not just about me, it's about the actual programme of transplantation. It's about, is it worthwhile uh, people donating their organs? And when you look at somebody like me who's gone 30 years... Well, what can you say? Of course, it's it's absolutely worth it. I don't know what's around the corner. I don't know what's in the future. Uh, I'm just pleased, natural fact, and grateful to the donor, um, which has given me that 30 years. What system of organ donation would you support? I would firmly support the opting out scheme. I can't guarantee that we get any more organs from it. I think the responsibility should be on the individual to take his name off the register, he he or she, take their name off the register if they don't support it. We know full well that the system we've got at the present moment doesn't appear to be working because we're not getting the organs. I visit people who are on the waiting list when I go to the hospital and I know full well that these people, quite a number of them, will die before they even get an organ. I find that totally unacceptable. If you say that you're not sure if the opt-out system would even lead to more organs, what would be the benefit then? The benefit is, as far as administratively, we spend an awful lot of money advertising. At least it would cut down on an awful lot of the advertising if everyone was automatically put onto the donor register. There is no guarantee that even by donating your organs that your organs will ever be used because it might not be suitable for transplantation. As I said, I don't know whether we're going to get any more organs from it or not, but you won't find out unless you try the scheme. Uh, well, that's our reporter there. Speaking, um, Jessica Cooper speaking to John, who uh, had a heart transplant 30 years ago. And it does raise an interesting question, doesn't it? Should it be? The donor system at the moment, you kind of have to opt in. 
Uh, my wife has an odd take on this. She said, look, they can take whatever they want when I'm dead, just not my eyes. <laughs> and I said, why not your eyes? She said, oh, they're, because they're, they're, they're part of me. Well, hang on, everything's part of you. It's weird, isn't it? Have you got a bit of your body you don't want them to take? My wife doesn't want them to take her eyes. I, I, I've kind of said, listen, have whatever you want, you know, whatever, have anything. I, I haven't got a donor card. I suppose I should sort that out. But, I, you know, have whatever you want. I don't care. I'm going to be dead. Should it be an opt-out system? Should we uh, assume that you want to donate bits of your body unless you say otherwise? That makes sense. I can't believe that in 2012 there is anybody listening to this who does not think uh, uh, that it's okay for organ transplants, who doesn't want to save someone's life by giving their kidney or their heart or their liver or their eyes or whatever. Are you okay with organ transplants? Do you, when you go, are you happy for your body to be harvested and for them to come in and just take whatever? Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. I would be so surprised if anyone is listening to this who is not happy with having bits of their body taken away from them when they die. Maybe that's you. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. Cat correspondent Justin Dealey is out and about. We'll speak to him later on. Um, on the hunt of a cat that's terrorising a neighbourhood. I want your cat stories. You can text those in, 81333, starting your text 3CR. Ben in Buckingham, my, my neighbour's cat is no trouble. It's a house cat. It doesn't go out and it's hairless. Those hairless cats are weird, aren't they? It's just like all the wrinkly skin. Um, uh, Philip and Joe. Uh, next door's cat terrorises our cat and even comes into our home wanting his food. If the door is closed, she'll bang against the door. She's small and old, but runs like a hurricane. Fortunately, ours, Chester, is quicker. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. Some cats are vicious little so and sos, aren't they? It turns out there's something in this. We're talking about organ transplant, opting out, and, and I said my wife doesn't want. She's happy for them to take everything from her body, not her eyes. Okay, Kelly Betts, who's a member of the team here, has just emailed me. I wouldn't want them to take my eyes either, in case I get to heaven and can't see. Really? Are there bits of your body, dear listener, that you are not happy to donate? On FM, AM and online, BBC Three Counties Radio. Coming up. Cat correspondent Justin Dealey is on his way to Wingrave to find a cat that's been terrorising its neighbours. We think we know where the cat lives, but will JD track it down? And I'll be giving you a sneak preview of what Jonathan Vernon-Smith's big phone-in is all about today. If you want to get in touch, do get, uh, you can text 81333, starting your text 3CR, or give us a call 08459 455 555. Ironing, it's a waste of time. Are you one of those weirdos that washes new things before you wear them uh, or use them? Uh, are there bits of your body that you don't want to donate? For whatever reason, eyes are top of the list at the moment. 08459 455 555. Now, a week today, you will get the chance to uh, vote for who you want to be your police and crime commissioner. On this programme, we've heard from voters in beds, hearts and bucks, plus all the candidates. Are you any wiser about what the role of the new commissioner will be? Well, Morris Collins is a senior lecturer in policing studies at Bucks New University and a former police inspector with Thames Valley Police. He joins me now. Morning, Morris. Good morning, Ian. Do you think the idea of a police and crime commissioner is, is settling in with everyone? Because for a long time, people didn't know what it was or what it was about. I think I think that's still the case. It's still got a long way to go before it truly settles in and is understood. And in all honesty, the government have done an appalling job of marketing this new post, in all honesty, and getting people engaged with the election. But it is clear there is opportunity in the new post if it's allowed to happen and provided 
people get behind it and, and give these new commissioners a mandate. Well, uh, there are uh, talks of a very low turnout. Even David Cameron has said uh, it, it would take a, a few years to bed in and, and people... I mean, we've heard figures as low as maybe 20% mm. turning out. That could be... Um, that's not great, is it? No, it doesn't enable somebody to go in and start the job up and running as a champion. But, you know, people need to understand that, you know, all the conversation has been about keep, keeping politics out of policing. Of course politics needs to stay out of policing. But actually, control of local budgets is important. S- standing up for the rights of victims of crime is important. And things like that, the police commissioner will be very well placed to do, far more so than police authorities ever were. And if the debate is widened to, widen to include things like that, people will see some of the opportunity. What's the feeling amongst police officers? Are, are they generally given this thumbs up? Oh, let's be honest. Police officers' morale at the moment is rock bottom. There is so much change going on uh, across policing in England and Wales at the moment. There was a, an academic review published this week which engaged 14,000 police officers and only 5% of them thought that actually government policy at the moment is helping them uh, do their job of policing. So police officers are thinking largely at the moment this is another change at a bad time and we don't need it. But... You know, they are going through the mill at the moment, no doubt about it. You talked about politics, uh, and, and there are people, uh, although they're not representing political parties necessarily, that, that come from political backgrounds. Do you think people are just going to vote by the political party? Like, if there's a candidate who's from Labour, they're going to vote for that, or Tory, or...? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, people are people, they do what they do, and the chances are that will happen, happen. But the voting system is interesting. People get two choices this time, and it ends up being a two-horse race with mm. two, two most popular candidates, provided nobody immediately gets 50% of the vote. That just means in an area like Thames Valley, and I'll talk about Thames Valley because that's the area I know, whilst it's traditionally blue, there just is a chance for somebody like the Labour candidate to step in. But this shouldn't be about politics, and you should be looking at the candidate that you believe is going to represent the voice of the people best, you know, because there's going to have to be an oath that these people take that says we're going to put politics to one side and we're actually going to serve the communities. Morris, do people care? Do people really care about who's in charge of the coppers? Obviously they want they want crime down and they want yeah. the bad people put away, but do, do people are people that bothered about who's in charge? Yeah, well, on the evidence, the track record of the government, I'm not yet convinced the government care. I actually think the community do care. Because, you know, we don't often talk about policing, but that doesn't mean we, mean we don't value it. And when something like the tragic death of those two girls in Manchester happens, the whole world is united in saying how tragic that is and how brave police officers are. Uh, so people do care, but it gets lost in, in our busy lives at the end of the day. And finally, uh, Maurice, what are the positives of, of this new PCC system? Well, I say, there can be the, the democratic voice of the people, the visible voice of the people, if, if the post is allowed to happen. And, and particularly there's an opportunity for the commissioners to stand up for victims of crime, which is important and hasn't really been done well in the past. And also bring agencies together, because, you know, reducing crime isn't just about the police service. There's many organisations, including councils, schools etc. Yeah. Morris Collins, uh, Senior Lecturer in Policing Studies at Bucks New University. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, you can give us a call, 08459 455 555. And you can get your say on this, uh, on the issue of Police and Crime Commissioners, uh, with Jonathan from 9 o'clock this morning. Today he's asking, what could the police do better where you live? I'm sure you've got a long list. Bit of credence, first thing in the morning. Morning, this is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio, 640. 08459 455 555 is the phone number if you want to give us a call. The Football Supporters Federation, the FSF, says the attitude of some police to football fans is stuck 25 years in the past. 
It says that while many forces have a positive approach, some match commanders still use heavy-handed tactics and treat all fans as potential hooligans. Mark Chapman, the vice-chair of Luton Town Supporters Club, says that fans of his club are often unfairly victimised because of the club's violent past. Morning, Mark. Is that true? Oh, it certainly is on certain circumstances, and I think one of the points that you make, it's certain forces. Um, there is no complaints at all, from my point of view, from the Bedfordshire Police Force, um, which is well known to Luton fans, um, and have you know, done a very good job over a period of years. But after saying that, you know, we've only got to look at the likes of changed kick-off times, all-ticket matches, which is not only, you know, putting to inconvenience those fans that the police are targeting, but it targets every single fan around. And consequently, the loser out of it is football in general, because it just means foot fans don't turn up. Now, Luton does have a, a little bit of an aggressive history, and obviously that's in the past. Uh, you concerned that the, the police, some police officers think that you're all thugs still? Uh, yes. Yeah, and there is certainly a case that, um, you know, we're targeted um, along with a number of other clubs. Uh, and I'm not going to say that the problems have totally gone away. Um, you know, there have been incidents, you know, not so much this season, but over the past couple of seasons where, you know, there is cause for concern. But it is the targeting of every single fan. And certainly, you know, the, the attitudes of certain police forces um, has caused problems for you know, every single fan across the country. Give us some examples of, of the, the way that you're treated that you think is inappropriate. Well, certainly, you know, let's take the recent cup game at Cambridge. You know, the kick time was brought forward by two hours, and it was made an all-ticket game, which is extremely inconvenient, you know, when you've got to travel and all the rest Mark, of it. Mark, I don't know anything about football. Tell me how that, um, that impacts on you as a fan. Well, you know, the fact that you've got to get an all-ticket game, first of all, means that you've got to get tickets before the match. You know, right. and for tickets, and, and games where you've got sell-out crowds, I can understand it. You know, you know, where you're going to get a stadium that holds 10,000 is going to be 10,000 full, that's inconvenient. Whereas if you go to, um, you know, a, a game where you've got, like the Cambridge game in the Cup, we get 2,000 fans in a 10,000 capacity stadium, you know, it just bears logic. You know, there's just nothing in there at all. You know, you then got to go make separate trips down to the ticket office. You know, and for someone like myself that lives in North Bedfordshire, it's just inconvenient. So you can't buy but, them online or anything? You've got to go, go and get them face-to-face? Well, you, -face. you, you can't, you oh. can't, you, but, you know, but it's going. You've got to think about it and all the rest of it. He's taking out the impulse purchase. And the bigger impulse on that is actually on the football clubs themselves. You know, because it makes them, you know, so the impact then long-term for football fans, we're well aware of some of the financial problems for clubs have gone through, Luton being a prime example. Look, do you not see, think that in, in that respect, maybe you're being a little bit picky? That yeah. You can, listen, everyone's on the internet pretty much, you can buy a ticket in advance. No, 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 hang on, I'm not even picky about that, but then you've got all the treatment of the fans at the games themselves. Go on. You know, so, you know, you're not allowed to have a drink near the football, the ground, you know, the, the fact that, you know, quite often you'll come out of a football ground, and, you know, recent example, from my point of view, I travelled by car to the game. OK, I'd gone to the away game. Yeah. I was then herded from the football ground because the police had assumed that everyone had travelled by train. So you were then herded to the train station. My right. car happened to be parked half a mile in the opposite direction. And what uh, happened when you said, Oh, excuse me, mate, I'm, I want to go that way? Uh, basically, totally ignored. Right. Right, that's not helpful, is it? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's just not... And it's not how you would treat people in the 21st century. 
Mark, we've got 30 seconds. One th- the, the priority, the main thing you would change from the attitude of the police? Greater liaison and far greater communication with all fans groups and all fans. Mark, thank you very much. Mark Chapman, Vice Chair of Luton Town Supporters Club. Maybe you've got a comment on that. That's Gary Barlow, Forever Autumn, from the uh, reworked War of the Worlds. Um, by Jeff Wayne, of course. Morning, this is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, there's a cat in Wingrave, it's got a reputation. Oscar has apparently been terrorising the neighbours. Uh, if you want to see what Oscar looks like, there's a picture in the Daily Mail, page 27. Um, it quotes from some of the neighbours. Children can't walk down the alley to school. They all know about the cat and they're frightened it's going to get them. Uh, we can go to our uh, cat correspondent, Justin Dealey, now. Justin, good morning. Yes, hello, Ian. I'm live in Wingrave this morning, looking for Oscar the cat, who, who sounds absolutely terrifying. Agreed? Would, it, you, would you agree with that? It, it, it sounds awful, to be honest, yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, apparently he's caused many problems here in the village. He's attacked dogs. He's even attacked people, we believe. Um, Oscar is a Turkish van cat. And he's actually a famous cat, Ian. He shot to fame a couple of years back on an Ikea advert. You might remember that one. Now, these type of cats, they like swimming. When have you heard of a, ever heard of a cat oh, who likes no, swimming? Oh, no, no, This cat already sounds devil-like. Cats don't like yeah. water. They're also described as dogs in a cat suit <laughs> to this particular breed. Um, he, uh, he disappeared a few weeks ago. Uh, the village, they thought they'd seen the back of him, but now he's back. Apparently he's under house arrest here. He turned up, there's a great... The truth. Justin, there's a great quote in, in the paper here. He arrived back in Wingrave on Saturday, where villagers mm. are arming themselves with water pistols. One villager, <laughs> who asked not to be named, admitted many had hoped the only way Oscar would return would be, quotes, in a body bag. Oh, oh it, it can't be that bad, can it? Apparently it is bad, and what we believe, well certainly the believe, so we're going to try and track down later on, that that Oscar jumped on the back of a lorry, he then spent days and weeks in a nearby town stealing other cats' food Mm. whilst the owners were away. How do we know that? Because the owners had a cat sitter, they thought something wasn't right, they waited, they pounced, they put him in a box, they took him to the local vet, he was microchipped, that's how he's back here. Now, a few minutes ago, I popped into the village shop, it's um, very, very quiet, but I spoke to Risa, Risa Carroll, who's the owner of the shop and has been for the last eight years. Now, believe it or not, this cat ended up on the counter in the village shop. It followed the owner. It was yelling outside. It then came in, got up onto the counter. She said to me, people are terrified and they're not happy that this cat is now back here in this village. Wow. OK, so you're, you're going to try and hunt the cat down today, Justin. <laughs> and if you find it, what are you going to do to it? Well, I think well, I, I'll try and be nice. I, I saw you <laughs> leaving. I, I saw you leaving the studio with um, a big sack and some bricks. What are they for? <laughs> that, that, that's for tomorrow's story. Oh. But hopefully, we're, we're, we're tracking down. Okay. Um, we, we know where the owner lives. We're going to go and have a chat. Um, also, we're trying to track the man who apparently was attacked earlier this year by the cat and put in hospital for a week. So we'll try and speak to those two people before nine o'clock this morning. Very quickly, Justin. Um, we're talking about people who, who wash stuff when they buy it, be it clothes or crockery. They wash it before they use it. You're not one of those perverts, are you? <sighs> Absolute madness. Absolute madness. If I go and buy a shirt, I'll be straight on my back and I'll be going out on it. I don't see why you need to wash shirts. It's bizarre. Don't. These people are wrong. And you don't iron things, do you? No, I've got no idea how to iron. There you go. See, Justin Daly, he's the, the, the man, the common voice. Literally. <laughs> if you see Justin in Wingrave wandering around in his crumpled shirts, 
uh, then go and grab him and tell him about this cat. We're keen to find out uh, about that. Very quickly, got a text um, on uh, cleaning things. Cutlery and crockery should always be washed when new before you use it. You never know who may have touched it with dirty hands or coughed and sneezed over it. Even if it's sold in a bag or a box, it will have been exposed when made prior to packing. But I completely agree with you on ironing. I just hang things very neatly to dry. They look okay. That's George from Wing. Christina Perry, Jar of Hearts. I like that. It's nice, that song. I mean, it's another one of those girl singers singing slow songs, but I like that one. We're asking about when you're buying new things, do you wash them before you use them? I thought we'd get no response on this. It turns out loads of you are d- deviants. Siobhan on Twitter, my ex-husband, oh, that's, that's significant, I think. My ex-husband would buy something new and put it straight in the laundry bin. Go figure. That's weird, isn't it? Call 08459-455-555-BBC3Counties-Radio-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-Morning-
I think sometimes they don't always give people the right time. Sometimes if you're not very confident with your, your, your cash or you're, you're looking for something, they don't give people enough time to deal with things, especially the checkout can be a dreadful place. But you can understand, can't you, Paul? And just to take their side for a second, that often these people are very rushed and they're kind of, they're working and they're busy and then suddenly what, what they perceive as some, you know, doddery old so-and-so just taking, taking up their time, it can be frustrating for them, can't it? Are you just saying that they should just be a little bit more patient? It's more than that. It's about making sure that they are, have the right environment and the staff who are skilled enough to deal with people. Well, that was earlier on in the show. Uh, Pat Van Spike joins us now from Royston. Her husband lives with dementia. Good morning, Pat. Good morning. Explain to us um, how you first noticed that there was something wrong with your husband. I don't know his name. So I'm sorry it's about that. Peter. Peter. How did you, when did you first notice something was wrong with Peter? Well, I was thinking about this, and it started very early. It's a long journey, dementia. Mm. And it's not one of these, you go in the hospital and have an operation, it's better. It's a very long journey. And Peter first started with uh, very odd signs in 1994. And he was not diagnosed until 2006. You wow. can see what the difference is. Mm. Um, he was um, not the same old Peter. And, and what was it? Was it was it confusion? Was it, it was forgetting confusion. his car keys and things like that to start with? Yes, those sorts of things. And his spatial awareness was the first thing that I noticed. Driving the car out of the garage, he scraped it every day. He mm. parked very badly. Would go around an island not knowing which exit to take. Um, he was in a danger. Mm. But uh, various things happened. He had a business which went, you know, down the pan. And it was at that stage that I really thought something was seriously wrong. And so I took him to the doctors who saw him quite, you know, about six weeks each week for um, half an hour or an hour. And he said, I'm very sorry to say, but I really think Peter's got Alzheimer's. He was diagnosed at Adam Brooks, and a very nice consultant said, judging from the MRI scan, he's had this disease for about 10 or 11 years. And that puts it about right to when I noticed things were odd. And it hadn't been picked up. And it hadn't been picked up. And how, and old, how old was he when, he when it started? Well, um, I worked that out, and he was probably just in his early 50s. Mm. And now he's 67. Same as my granddad. People, people think it's an old person's disease. My granddad went sort of in his, his started in his mid-50s. Mid yes, well, it's called early onset. Mm. It, didn't, it wasn't recognised, I think, for many years. Uh, we're lucky, I suppose, for it to have been recognised, but it would have saved a lot of trouble if it had been diagnosed sooner. What do you think about these plans to, to, to train people as dementia friends? Well, it's a good idea. Any friend for people with dementia is good. Um, generally speaking, friends drop you, not because they're being unkind, but they can't cope with seeing an old friend in this state. Um, a lot of people I've met in the umbrella of Alzheimer's have all said the same thing. You lose your friends, you make new friends who understand what Alzheimer's is about. And I think that's true. Now then, um, a friend, there, there is a scheme in Cambridge, and I think it's run by the Mental Health Authority there, and they call it buddy. You become a buddy. Mm. And that's usually people who have already lost their partner who's died from Alzheimer's or dementia. And then they go and help other people who are going through the same thing, which I think is a super idea. So if the friends means something similar to that, that's a very good idea. It's a lot of money. 
Pat, do, do, do go back to the, the friends thing there. I, I, I have personal experience of this because of illness in my family, but yeah. a, a lot of people would be amazed by it. D- does Peter have any of his his original friends who still no. keep in touch? Well, he used to keep in touch with people he was at university with. You know, there was a... I think people who've been in the army or in the, you know, university, mm. they're very friend, deep friends with those people. And only one of those called... He, I know he lives in London, but he goes to Norfolk a lot. And he's not been to see Peter. And mm. when Peter could still talk, which he can't now, he, he used to say, where's Bottrell, this man's name? Mm. And other friends... It, you know, I've told them and Christmas cards and things like that, but that nobody's ever offered to come really? over and see him. Which now it's too late. Mm. People wouldn't recognise him if they walked through the door. There will be people listening who will find that. I mean, I find it incredible. I, I've seen it happen with my mum uh, and her illness. Uh, uh, but it, it does. I, c- I can't imagine abandoning one of my best friends like that just because. They well, were we've, Ill. Got, we've got other best friends yeah. who live in London who come up frequently. They right. bring a curry and we pretend we're having a dinner party or a luncheon party just like we used to. And Peter loves it. Mm. He laughs inappropriately, but does that matter? Good he for him. feels happy. Yeah. He's not quite sure who they are. Indeed, how... he's not quite sure who I am. <laughs> I, was, I was about to ask, how is Peter now? What, what's, what's, the, what's his condition? At the moment, Peter does not speak. He mumbles like a baby would. Um, he needs full care of walking around. He can hardly walk. Um, he needs bathing, showering, whatever, dressing, feeding. So he's... I'm trying to keep him happy. Mm. And he is happy at home. But at what expense to me, um, you can't tell, really. Um, my life has gone. And this is what's wrong with... You get a diagnosis in a home and everybody expects that everybody who lives in that home has got dementia. All the friends drop here. You never get invited anywhere. And, and I think that's really sad. We've got some special friends who've always been in touch with us all throughout the whole thing. But generally speaking, people with Alzheimer's and dementia, the carers are, have got a great burden and their friends should support them. Of course they should. Pat, and I listen. think if any initiative that helps that is good... Pat, thank you very much. Pat Van Spike from Royston, talking about her husband, Peter. It's true. I find it amazing. My mum has MS, as I mentioned a few times, and one by one, all of her friends and some of her family, quite close family, dropped her. None of her friends... Maybe one or two of her friends go and see her maybe once or twice a year. Uh, And that's it. Uh, I had a great morning with my mum yesterday. We found a a greasy spoon in... Not not greasy spoon, it's Gerard's Cross. It's too posh for that. We found a a nice restaurant in Gerard's Cross yesterday that does a full English. She was over the moon! She was over the moon. We had a fantastic time. Uh, well, later on uh, in the show, we'll be talking to Care Minister Norman Lamb, uh, who'll be joining us in just under an hour. 08459 455 555 is the telephone number if you want to give us a call. JVS will be on at 9 o'clock. Always worth a listen. Uh, and today, he's in line of, in light of the PCC elections that are going to be taking place soon. He's asking, what could the police do better? where you live. He'll be looking at what's being described as the biggest shake-up in policing in the last 50 years. The new role of police and crime commissioner has been designed to give us all a greater voice when it comes to the job that the police do. But it's got its critics. And Jonathan will be hearing the arguments for and against. And he wants to know what you think, seeing as the PCCs are to give us a greater voice. He'll be asking at nine, what could the police do better where you live? Across beds, hearts and bucks, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. 
we're asking about clothes. I know. Bear with me. We can make this fun and exciting. Okay. Do you um, when you buy new clothes or new crockery or new cutlery and things like that? Do you have to go and wash it? I don't. I, I got some shirts. I order them off the internet. I've never done that before. Oh, I felt so dangerous. I felt dangerous. I like to try on clothes and know what's if they're going to fit. I, I got them. They arrived yesterday. I ripped open the bag this morning and put on a shirt. People are disgusted. A that I've not ironed it, and B that I've not washed it. Really? Do you do that? I'm beginning to find out it's mainly a man thing. It's the blokes are a little bit OCD, I'm going to say it, and have to wash these things before they wear them. Is that you? 08459 455 555. And also, can we we just agree once and for all? Okay, to get to get rid of ironing. If we all make a stand, then none of us will ever have to iron again. Okay, if you're wearing a smart shirt because you've got a job interview or something, then maybe. But let's be honest, you put that shirt on, within five minutes it's all creased. It's all creased. C- can we just get rid of the iron? 08459 455 555. I need some people to phone up and say, yes, Ian, I support you. I don't iron my clothes. It's absolutely blooming pointless. Should have a quick look at the front pages. The Times, a lot of them, it's, it's Barack Obama. The Times, souvenir edition. Oh, I'm going to keep this. It'll be worth money in the future. It won't. Well, the, the Times is one of those fake covers with Obama. And inside, uh, it's Wiggins in hospital uh, after being hit by car. The Guardian, it's Barack Obama. The best is yet to come. The Independent, the tenacity of hope. And so again, it's another souvenir edition. Man, we must keep these. Man, we've got to keep these newspapers. They'll be worth a fortune one day. The Daily Telegraph. Is the Telegraph bigger than normal? It feels huge. Maybe my hands have shrunk. How Obama changed the face of America. The Daily Express. Diabetes. New tests will be a lifesaver. And there's also Nadine Doris. Jungle MP Nadine. You're not a celeb. Get out of there. And also on the front page of the Express. Dad's Army legend Clive Don't Panic Dunn dies age 92. Clive Dunn is dead. Can I be honest? Permission to speak freely. Thank you. I thought he died in the 80s. I genuinely did. And I, I, when it was, on, it was on Twitter, oh no, not Clive Dunn, someone posted. I thought, oh my God, he's, he's involved with this whole Savile thing. He's not. Uh, he died. And I was like, but I, I thought he died in 1989. Genuinely. The Daily Mail, surgeon botched 1,000 breast stops and the son, Wiggins, knocked off bike by van. And they have the full run-up of all of those um, uh, I'm a celeb uh, contestants. I know about four of them. Maybe we'll have a look at those a little bit later on. Now, an abortion clinic in Milton Keynes says protesters have been intimidating and causing distress to women using the service. The 40 Days for Life group organised the 40-day protest at the British Pregnancy Advice Service Clinic in Milton Keynes. We're joined on the line now by the uh, campaign organiser, Andy Burton. Good morning, Andy. Oh, good morning, Ian. I'm fine, thank you. We've also got Claire Murphy from BPAS. Good morning, Claire. Good morning. Claire, what's it been like? The protest has ended now, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, What was it like as the protest was going on? I think it was a, a mixed picture, but I think by and large we can say that yes, women and and staff found it very unpleasant um, while it was while it was going on. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, these are women trying to access a private legal service. I mean, when you go for medical advice about anything, you don't want to have to walk past a, a group of people, sometimes with dogs, um, waving banners as, as you make your way into a clinic. And, you know, unplanned pregnancy is an extremely private, confidential um, area. And, yes, women have, have found it ex- it, some women have found it extremely distressing. Were there any specific examples, Claire, of intimida- uh, intimidation? 
Well, I mean, for instance, you know, we've got I've got a client comment form um, in front of me. So this is this is a, a comment a, a woman has 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 written down after having to to make her way past these people, and she says, "I found their presence intimidating, their signs degrading, and their attitudes draconian. No woman, regardless of their age or reason for attending this clinic, should have to put up with them being there." And I think basically that kind of pretty much encapsulates how many women felt about having to make their way past these people. Andy, you're intimidating women. Yeah, I, I find it very funny that um, Claire says that that's um, a general a general feeling when she only had one response. Um, I've actually got a response here from Andy, one of our volunteers. I, had, I didn't say I had one response. I said that response encapsulated how many women felt by seeing you there outside a clinic. Well, you had your say, Claire. Please let me have mine. Um, I've got a response here from one of our volunteers, and we've got many such amazing feedback from people. It says, Dear Andy, on Wednesday outside the Acorn House Abortion Clinic... A young lady passed us several times, then returned to join us in prayer and was reduced to tears. In time, she shared her story with us. It was the placard that she noticed, which clearly encouraged her to, t- to join us. But Andy, Andy, we it have was- an example. We have an example from from Claire there uh, that she's read out. It's on her comments form, and she says this is representative of, of a lot of other people that a woman felt intimidated. But I want, well, of course, they, they, they're upset by no, our no, no, no. Address, because they've uh, no, just no. killed their child. And, uh, Andy, that's they're not, not going to feel uh, good Andy, about it. Andy, the thing that specifically made them intimidated was your protest. Address that issue, please. Well, yes, our presence pricks their conscience. It's not us it intimidated that them. them. It's their conscience. No, Andy, the woman is specifically, you're not, listen to what I'm saying. The woman in that comment specifically said your presence intimidated her. Now, you well, told me when you came in you weren't going to intimidate anybody. Well, no, it's their conscience that intimidates people, Andy, not our peaceful, prayerful presence. I will presence. put this to you one more time, OK? It wasn't her conscience. She said specifically, listen to what I'm saying, she said specifically it was your presence that intimidated her. Well, if you'd let me continue... With well, if this... you'd address the point that I'm making, Andy. Well, she I have said speci- You haven't. She said specifically that your presence intimidated her. Address that. Well, if I can just tell you about this no, lady address, that had... No, 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 no. Address what I've just said to you that she gets intimidated. By you, as you I, intimidated as I said, her. If I was trying to kill a child, I wouldn't I would like to do it in private, like Claire says. I wouldn't want anyone around to see me do that. It's the most wicked thing you can do to kill your own child. But more wicked would to be a church leader who did nothing to support us on this wonderful vigil. And it's been such a success. Not only are we coming back twice next year to do it, but we're also going to be there uh, next week and the week after. We're going to start with one day per week. It's been such a success that the volunteers want to continue this vital outreach to these women that are in pain. Can I, can I come in? Of course you can, Claire, yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in, in Andy's criteria for, for success because it doesn't seem to me that his his mission serves any immediate purpose above and beyond causing women distress. He's not reducing the number of abortions. He's not stopping women coming into the clinic. He's simply intimidating them and making them feel that much worse on what is already for many women a difficult day. I mean, this idea that women don't have any don't have any conscience or that they need they need Andy there to prick their conscience, I think, is absolutely ludicrous. Women make decisions about unplanned pregnancy based on the very real circumstances of their life circumstances about which andy and his gaggle of friends know absolutely nothing i'd like to ask you claire if we had no effect why was your clinic closed all last weekend when it should have been open 
Because our clinics don't do close sometimes, Andy. Oh, really, I mean, your website it's, it's is, is, is open every every alternate weekend. Andy, I, listen, rest assured. Come on, Claire, I ask the question. It was I closed. Can, she's, she's trying, trying, Andy, Andy, she's trying, Andy, can, she's trying to answer the question. I can absolutely guarantee you that if our clinic is closed, it has absolutely nothing to do with you. Very strange it was closed a weekend, Claire, when it should have been opened. The clinic sometimes closes at the weekend, Andy, well, and I can tell you now, it has, it has absolutely Not nothing to, to website, do with you. Andy? Not according Andy? to the website, Andy, Andy, yeah. if you look at the website, it will say it is, it, it is closed on alternate Sundays. Claire, and you, alternate Saturdays. Uh, uh, Andy, thank you. Claire, do, is it true you had to get frosted glass put in? It is, it's true, we had to have frosted glass put on, put, on, put on the front door, because protesters were standing on the steps looking in at, at, uh, at women and staff. That private glass, what date was it actually up? Because it's been there for some time before we, we ever came there, Claire. No, it, no, Andy, it came up shortly after you arrived and started looking in through the window. That's not fair, is it, Andy, that the, the, the women were feeling so intimidated that they had to, the, 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 the company had to put frosted glass up? It's an absolute nonsense. We stand about uh, 50 foot away on the public highway. And um, if, we were, if we were not successful, what, why is Claire bothered about our presence? And if she's so pro-choice, if we're off in an alternative... Andy, you've made your point. Let Claire come back on it, please. Okay. I, uh, why, why, why are we upset about Andy's presence there? Because unlike you, we're actually here to support women at what is a very difficult time in, in their lives. And we're here to provide advice, support and care, which is absolutely the last thing. You kill thing. babies and get paid for it. That's, that's, that's what you want. You don't get paid a penny for saving Andy. Andy, do you not appreciate that in some circumstances, um, uh, be it the the the, uh, the point of conception or for financial reasons or for whatever reason, it's inappropriate for some women to to carry on with their pregnancy? You don't kill humans, Ian. We went through this before. How can you kill a human? Okay. There's no excuse. Let me put let me put an extreme example to you, Andy. Okay, this is an extreme example, but this There's does happen. There's nothing extreme that no. can justify killing a human. Okay, I'm going to put an example to you that some might consider extreme, but does happen. A woman has been uh, raped and molested and finds herself pregnant as a result of that. She has the choice, does she not, to say, I don't want to carry that baby. I don't want to have that baby. She has the, the op- two options, either raise the child or get it adopted. Okay. The option to well, kill that baby, it, it's okay. horrific She's been raped- and worse than the rape itself. It's okay. madness. So, it, 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 hang on a minute. You're saying that, that, that an abortion is worse than a rape. Wow. Okay, well, we're playing top trumps with that. That's bad, crazy. But the baby is good. It's nonsense. I'm not, saying that, says- I'm not saying that in the slightest. What I'm saying is, supposing a woman has been sexually attacked by a member of her family, she finds herself pregnant. She doesn't want to have that baby. We heard yesterday that there are loads of kids that are waiting for adoption that aren't being adopted. She has the right not to go through that nine months of what could be very traumatic experience and have that baby, doesn't she? The kids not being adopted is a completely separate argument. Well, no, um, it's not. You're saying put them up for adoption. Well, there are thousands of kids that aren't being adopted. We talked about that yesterday. Yeah, but that's a separate argument in, in one that I'm, I'm trying to address. Oh, God. But there, there are... There, I, I, was, I tried twice to foster children and was turned down from, from my Christian views. Well... And, and I refused to promote homosexuality. Oh, for goodness sakes, Andy. Let's stop going off on tangents. And, you know, I, I, I kind of agree with that decision not to let you foster kids. Uh, Claire, these people have got a right to protest if they want, haven't they? Oh, gosh, absolutely. And I think, you know, as an organisation, we're very supportive of freedom of speech and people's right to protest. But, 
you know, I think I think what's really important here is not really for someone like Andy to ask whether what he does is 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 legal. I think the most important thing is 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 for us all to ask whether what he does is moral. And I think it's I think it's incredibly interesting for someone who invokes morality and compassion for, for human life feels so at ease um, with with standing outside a clinic basically causing distress to women as I say, what is already a very difficult day in their lives. More protests coming Claire, how are you going to handle those? In in the way we always do I mean, you know, we... Close we, the clinic. we <laughs> well, she, no, Andy, Andy, can I just say, I, I, I don't think laughing is particularly appropriate in this conversation. So let's just try and keep this. Well, normal. I think it's great that the clinic was closed. I think but, it's wonderful. But it wasn't closed because of you, Andy. It was Ian. Well, what it was evidence? All weekend. What They're evidence? To open Andy, all what evidence? It, Andy, I'm really sorry that you're so deluded about this, but it really wasn't. What evidence do you have, Andy? It was closed because of your protest. Because their website states it's oh, open. Websites. We've been there, Ian. We've seen the. Yeah. We've seen Andy, the look at the website. Closing. It says it's. It says it's open on alternate weekends. No, it says open alternate Saturdays. You open one Saturday or one Sunday. It's oh. open Listen, one. Andy, Andy, listen, listen, I'm not going to get into the thing about opening hours on websites. They're, they're wrong. I've been to restaurants that are supposed to be open and they're shut because, the, you know, it says on the website. No trade, ridiculous. Ian. No trade. That's the reason. Oh, for goodness sakes, Andy. Yeah, for goodness sakes. Claire, more protests. What are you gonna, how are you going to deal with them? I think we'll, we'll monitor them and, and, and see how they go. And, and we hope that people like Andy actually ultimately do have their own consciences pricked about what they're doing. That's Andy, what we're final words. Uh, 20 seconds, Andy. That's why we're there. My conscience was pricked. And uh, that's why I'm there to help women. Okay, Andy, thank you very much. Indeed, it's Claire Murphy from B-Pass, and the uh, last voice you heard there um, was uh, Andy Burton, who organised the campaign. If you've got any views on that, 08459 455 555. Um, and th- there is some footage on our Facebook page of a shopkeeper getting involved in Little Brawl. I'll explain more. Sophie Tyler, BBC Three Counties Radio. Sophie, permission to speak freely. Yes. You sound scruffy. Are you... I, I mean that in a polite way. Uh, <laughs> are you, do you ever use the iron? I use it when, um, when I'm feeling like I have a little bit of free time and feeling fancy. So how often is that? Specifics. I can tell you, I think I've used it once in memory. Thank you very much. Once in memory? Wow! I knew it. I could tell. Right, 7.31. Oh, we're a bit late. I'll shut up. Here's the news now with Catherine. Call 08459 455 555. 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Right. You've got a minute. Go to the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash BBC3CR. We've put up a little bit of video. Please just go and watch it now. Okay, it's relevant to what we're talking about. There's a shopkeeper in Luton says that things continue to get worse for him and his staff. On Saturday, he had to confront known troublemakers who entered the shop, even though they were banned. The CCTV footage is on the Facebook page. Facebook.com forward slash BBC 3CR. Go and have a look now. Go. Go and have a look. Also coming up in this half hour, a Buckinghamshire heart transplant patient calls for opt-out donor system for organ donation. Do you agree that people should opt out? Call 08459 455 555. 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, 
Recently, we told you about the growing problem of crime and antisocial behaviour in the high town area of Luton. People living and working there say they are living in daily fear of prostitutes, pimps and drug dealers. Once it starts getting dark, you know, you're always having to look out of who's coming into the shop. You always have to look out the window, you know, and there's also customers who come in complaining about people coming into their cars when they're stopping. You know, you, you, you face verbal abuse from them sometimes and even at times there's been physical as well i haven't been able to go out in the evening because i've been accosted by curb crawlers and curb crawlers continuously go around these streets um the reason i don't see any prostitutes now is because i just don't go out at all in the evening and um, my daughter can never go out at all in the evening either and we do feel like prisoners um one time i was followed and i, I know that what's going to happen because i can tell by the way these men follow me what they're going to say and they they start tr- acting weird and coming really close to me and stuff and um and then i know they've kind of asked me for business that's what they say to me well um, one of the i feel like prey oh, excuse me one of the uh, people you heard there was shazad gadam he runs a convenience store in high town things continue to get worse for shazad and his staff on saturday he had to confront known troublemakers who entered his store even though they were banned as i said the, the footage is uh, was caught on cctv you can see it on the three counties facebook page it's pretty amazing shazad you're in the studio now nice to see you Thank you. Thank you for coming in. Explain to us kind of the things that you have to deal with on a daily basis. Well, it's it's like uh, any shopkeeper. You always have to be aware of shoplifters. Mm. But my particular store in Hightown area, we always have to be aware of people coming in, physical abuse, verbal abuse, and, you know, you, you have people standing outside asking customers for money, cigarettes, sort of harassing them yeah. all the times. So what kind of verbal abuse do you get in the show? Well, racial. Really? Yeah. Okay, yeah. You know, it's, it's not the first time, you know, a couple of people have been convicted of this. Right. And the, the same people which have been convicted continue to enter the shop even though they know they are banned. Now, the people in this footage that we've got, which I've seen and it's incredible, they've been banned from your shop? They have, yes. What for? Well, again, it's it's the verbal abuse, and they're known criminals. Mm. And so you said to them one day, that's it, I don't want you in my shop anymore, get out. That's it. Right. And they kept coming back? They keep on coming back, and they... You know, they have a look through the window, see whether I'm inside, and they, you know, and they'll know that they can intimidate my staff. Mm. And I, I've, I've got a, a you know, a, a job there to make sure my staff and my customers are safe. And you know, um, it's, it's, you know, their, their safety is 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 most important to me. Okay, so talk us through the incident that is on the CCTV footage. You're behind the counter. These lads come in. Well, it's it's uh, a one lad and one girl. Okay, right. Yes. Uh, and what do you say? Well, actually, I'm 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 you know out of view. Yeah. They haven't seen me. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sitting down, and they've entered and they've gone straight to the the beer cabinet. Yeah. And the young lady behind the counter, she looks at me and nods at me to ask whether she should tell them. That they're banned, right? If they're the ones, yeah. Which I signal to her, and I'm still out of view. Yeah. And this young lady asks them, "You know, excuse me, please. You know, you're not allowed in here." Yeah. And the response was, 
you know, foul language. Yeah. You know, why, who said, who are you, and sort of trying to, you know, trying to intimidate him. So you then go and approach them? I, well, actually, I, I, I jump up from my chair. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I confront them and I say, I said so. I don't need to give you a reason. Mm. You know you're not allowed in here. Leave the shop. Mm. And then it all kicks off. Yes, uh, well, you know, verbal abuse is thrown at me, uh, you know, racial abuse, and um, threats, mm. and, you know, refusing to leave. Mm. So that's when I actually confront him. Yeah, and let's be honest, I have seen the footage, and people will, will sit and make their own judgments. You do lay into him, physically. Well... You go for it. Uh, well, I, I think I had no... I was left with no choice. Right. You know, uh, it's either me or him. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure everybody else would feel, feel, you know, in my position, would feel the same way. What happens... Okay, so they, they, they get out. You report this to the police. What do the police do? Well, actually, um, I, I would don't let him leave. Right. Um, the, you know, we found the police, and they arrive, and they've had a look at my CCTV, mm. and th- they said to me, we've got two options. We can deal with it two ways. Either you both go down the station, or you both walk away. Mm. Well, I didn't fancy a trip, you know, half past nine in the morning to the police station. And um, I just just had Let to leave go. it at that. But, uh, I mean, I did say to them that the threats uh, against myself and my staff and, and the racial abuse yeah. I suffered, you know, what's going to be done about that? Do you feel that the police and the council are doing enough to protect shopkeepers like yourself? Definitely not. Um, you know, I've... You know, you see for one day or two days in a month, you know, um, something, you know, police presence, mm. but definitely n- not enough is being done. Um, it's, it's, it's like a cat and a mouse game to the, you know, to the mm. police. Mm. You know, the police will, will come out once a month, move them away, a couple of days later... They're back on it again. Okay, we'll say this uh, because uh, listening to this is Shane Brennan. Shane is the association uh, works for the uh, Association of Convenience Stores. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. You've heard the story there. How typical is that? Um, it's a pretty extreme example. I'm so, so, so commend Shazad on speaking out and mm. um, you know, the bravery that he's showing in, in, in highlighting this this issue. I mean, we we got evidence about one in five shopkeepers ex- report experiencing violence or uh, abuse. Um, one in five. One in five. That's quite in, in the last isn't it? year. Yeah. Yeah. It is a significant thing, and it's actually a, a thing that people wouldn't necessarily expect to be part of the job when you're working in a small shop, but unfortunately it is, and we need to find ways to make that less, make that not happen in the future. Where do shopkeepers stand legally on barring people from um, their shops? Well, the, 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 law, the law works on the basis that, much as a shop is open to the public, it is not a public space, so the public is only admitted at the consent of the owner, mm. and the owner can remove that consent from whoever they want, and they don't have to have a reason for that. Um, but there is obviously a caveat that re- uh, shop owners can't discriminate. They can't, if, they, if it's proved that they, the reason they're refusing entry is because of age, race, sex, then that obviously is the owner breaking the law. But like I say, in terms of what Shazad has done, he's absolutely within his rights to refuse anyone from coming into his shop. What would you recommend, though, if, if these troublemakers are banned, but they keep coming in and causing trouble, what would your suggestions be? Well, the first thing is you need to, I mean, obviously, you, you can refuse someone verbally, uh, barb someone verbally, but, in reality, but the best thing to do is to, is to ban them in writing. 
Okay. Um, so to actually provide them with a letter, ideally to their, their residence, if you don't know their residence, and obviously give it to them in, in, in the hand when, they, when they're refused, and keep a copy of that and give a copy to the police. But Shane, if you give a, le- a letter to some 18-year-old little so-and-so who just wants to come in and get some booze, they're going to laugh in your face, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, but it's a copy, you copy, you, you, you a copy of that on record and you give it to the police. Okay. So you show you've got a process you've gone through. And I think, you know, the issue that Shazad has seen is he's called the police out after a, a, a significant violent incident. Um, the question is, is how, how can and did, how can the police be involved at an earlier stage to be aware of the problem the retailer is trying to deal with and work in partnership with them? Shazad, you've, you've obviously spoken to the police since, this, since then. What have they said to do in the future? Well, basically, this, you know, they haven't actually said anything. Really? You know, if, what they said was... Well, they turned up. They must have uh, given well, you some advice. Well, all they said was that um, if they turn up again, mm. you know, just phone us, but you're within your right to um, ask them to leave. Mm. But can I just point out, you know, you just said, you know, one in five. I mean, I haven't, you know, I think most of the, you know, uh, pistols, they will not even want to report 75% of incidents because they'll feel, like myself, they'll feel that they're just going to waste their own time so by phoning the police. See, one in five sounds a lot to me, but you're saying it could be more. Just it could be more. Not, I, yeah, I, you know, worth. because we, we have to go on an everyday basis. We have to, you know, a number of times a day, we have to go through the same situation. Maybe not as violent. Yeah, that's an extreme. But verbal, you know, um, you know, verbally abuse from... Mm known criminals, we left to go through that on a daily basis, especially in the high town area. Shane, is there anything that the Association of Convenience Stores that you work for, is there anything they can do to help people like Shazad? Well, I think what we need, what, what needs to happen is we need to get police actually proactively supporting retailers like Shazad, so mm. not dealing with things on this reactive basis, but actually having a plan in place for uh, talking to the local about the problems that they're experiencing, having a stru- proactive strategy for preventing people like this coming into stores and causing problems that not just affect the retailer, but these people are the same people that are causing problems in other parts of the community as well. Shane, thank you very much. Is that, can I just say, on the footage, do you have, uh, I don't know who that little old lady is who works in your shop. Is she, uh, does she work there, I think? No, the, the, the lady oh. with the glasses is uh, actually uh, uh, just a neighbour who's oh, come... Oh, she's good, because she, she nips off and makes a cup of tea for yeah, everyone. Well, she, she was making the cup of tea before she come in, before <laughs> this happened. You uh, want to you, you give her a job, because you need people like that. Well, well you know, um, I, I needed something to calm me down after all of that. Thank you very much for coming in. So he wasn't, it wasn't difficult, was it? It wasn't bad I at told all. You, I told you it'd be fine. Well, you got another 15 minutes. So I can stay on for another 15 minutes if you like. <laughs> yeah, listen, you do it. I'm off. I've, I've seen what you're like with the right hook. Shazad, thank you very much for coming in. Shazad Kadam. Uh, and thank you for, to Shane Brennan, who is from the Association of Convenience Stores. Radio. Ah, dear. A cat has got a bit of a reputation in Wingrave. Oscar has apparently been terrorising the neighbours. It was lost, but it's returned home. And uh, only its owner are happy about it. He's a Turkish van. They've uh, nicknamed it the Asbo Cat. And he's been attacking dogs and residents. Well, BBC Three Counties reporter Justin Dealey is in Wingrave trying to find him. Well, here's Sam. Sam, you're 15 years old. On your paper round this morning, you know all about Oscar the Cat. Uh, He's been attacking people, hasn't he? Yeah, I heard that he's put two people in hospital and he's attacked dogs all over the village and bitten people walking down the 
pathway next to his house. So people in the village really are terrified of this cat? They sure are, and it's the tra- attacked chickens up the road and people it's been driving people crazy. Because you're a 15-year-old lad. I mean, yeah. when you think about pussycats, you think about nice pussycats. Yeah, I mean, this, this one clearly is, is not very nice. Yeah, you, do, you want to avoid it, not <laughs> sit there and give it a stroke. <laughs> now, Jenny, you're out this morning with your two shih tzus. If you saw Oscar the van cat coming towards you, there is a fear factor here. You would walk the other way, wouldn't you? I would indeed. Yeah, I mean, tell us why. Well, for a start, I wouldn't like them to claw my two little shih tzus. You know, if they had a, if he did attack them, yeah. well, then you can't do much, can you? They they wouldn't protect themselves, so we'd walk the other way. Now, Risa, you've owned the village shop here for the last eight years, and Oscar the cat ended up on your counter, which is highly unusual. How did that happen? Well, it followed its owner down here one day and wandered into the shop meowing and jumped up on the counter. Well, this is not normal, is it? Well, it doesn't often happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and now the cat, of course, is back in the village. People are saying to me they are terrified. Clearly the mood here is not great. People wanted to see the back of this cat, didn't they? Well, so I understand, but it's never done anything to me, so I can't say I have a problem with it. I know what we need to do. We need to send this guy out. Are you ready? Yeah. Here he comes. Move to him. Stay with him. Bang. Oh, look at it! He sent Jonathan yes. out, tooled up. Oh, I've trained a killer. Come on. <laughs> you feeling good? You, you hit it. I'm feeling really butch. We need to send Jonathan out to sort this cat out. Apparently, uh, uh, Justin, uh, our cat correspondent, has found Oscar's owner. We'll be finding out more just after 8 o'clock this morning. BBC Three Counties Radio, the first for news. <laughs> now, this is interesting, isn't it? This keeps popping up every now and then. Should we have an opt-out system? for organ donation. A man from Bucks who has become the longest surviving heart transplant patient in the UK certainly thinks so. When John McCaffrey from Newport Pagnell had the operation he was only given five years to live. Guess what? That was 30 years ago. I would firmly support the opting out scheme. I can't guarantee we would get any more organs from it. I think the responsibility should be on the individual to take his name off the register if they don't support it. Is it worthwhile uh, people donating their organs? And when you look at somebody like me who has gone 30 years, well, what can you say? Of course it's, it's absolutely worth it. Well, I've got two guests now, joined by Professor Gertz Randauer, the Director of the Institute for Health Research at the University of Bedfordshire. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. And also Dr Evan Harris, he's the former Lib Dem health spokesman who's in favour of presumed uh, consent. Good morning, Doctor. Good morning. Uh, Professor Randauer, you firstly, you worked on the task force that looked at bringing an opt-out system, but you found out that it might not actually have that many benefits. Is that right? Uh, Well, as Mr McCarthy said, um, it's certainly a system we should look at and examine, but as he mentioned in his interview, it it wouldn't necessarily guarantee an increase in organ donation rates. Why not? Well, there are countries, and if you look at countries like Sweden, who've got opting out, um, France have tried it, Brazil have tried it, they didn't achieve the successes. That's not to say we shouldn't look at it, and as we all know, at the moment, Wales are introducing opting out. Mm. I think what I'm definitely um, in favour of, which the task force received evidence on, is examining ways that can increase the likelihood of the public thinking about organ donation. I'm confused. We'll go back to go into that in a second. I'm confused by, by, by why the opt-out system doesn't necessarily increase the number of organs that are available for transplant. Is it families kind of stepping in uh, and saying, actually, no, we don't want this to happen? No. So in countries like, for example, uh, Sweden, people then opt out. They choose. They do actually do it, right? And in um, um, Brazil. Um, 
they had the same system and they introduced it in 1997. It was then repealed in 1998, principally because there was a mistrust of the government and accusations of body snatching. In France, they had an incident in 92 when um, an individual's corneas were removed, when the individual had consented to organ donation but not corneas. And that, again, damaged public trust. Mm. Whereas I think if you had something along the lines of mandated choice, um, which is where we would ask everybody in the British public to make a choice, yes or no, that would be a far more effective system because ultimately we don't want families to live with any sense of guilt post-bereavement. We want them to genuinely have made a decision which is based on the knowledge of what their loved ones really wanted. And the challenge with opting out is families are always then left wondering, well, did my loved one just forget to opt out or Mm. did they know about it? Whereas if you have a choice of mandated choice where you know the individual has either said, yes, I do want to donate and no, I don't, then it makes it far easier for the family to grieve and move on with their lives. And also for us as a society, it makes every individual and every family have to think about organ donation through our daily course of lives rather than the current system, which sadly relies too much on asking families at that tragic point of bereavement. Okay, Dr Harris, you support presumed consent. Why? Uh, yeah, support an opt-out system. Well, firstly, let's deal with mandated choice. Uh, everyone rejected that. Uh, I mean, it may be your other guests' preferred option, but uh, just like compulsory voting, there are real civil liberties implications of forcing people on pain of, I don't know, a fine if they don't uh, make a choice. And some people simply don't want to think about it. They may not object to saving lives after they're dead. In fact, most people don't. The vast majority of people don't, but they don't want to be forced into a choice. So I, did, I mean, obviously your other guest does support that, but, but it was rejected by the Commission. But let's just deal with the evidence for opt-out. What you heard, these anecdotes about incidents, a, an incident in France, Belgium, uh, France, Brazil, Sweden, that's not the way scientists approach this. What scientists do is look at, at studies uh, across a number of countries and within countries and look to see if there's an association between having an opt-out system and saving lives, that is, getting more donations uh, and therefore saving lives. And, and, and the, the, the group, the working group that your other guest was on, I'm sorry, I didn't catch his name at the beginning, uh, looked at these studies and found that uh, almost all of them, I think it was seven out of eight of the best studies, showed that association. Now, you can't show that it's caused by that unless you have a control. And none of these studies, they were retrospective and observational they didn't have those controls but that you'd never get that so all you can say is that uh, if there was a strong link between um uh, having an opt-out system and saving lives you would see an association between countries i.e similar countries one would have a higher rate if they had an opt-out system and rates would change within countries when they switched as it did in belgium and that's what it was shown yet the report controversially, and this is one I recognised in the journals, misrepresented that finding and said no study has shown causation. No study could ever show causation. Professor? We're pretty convinced that the BMA, that this would save lives, that it is much better, as the professor said, because people who say no are much less likely to to regret that at the later stage. Okay, Doctor, let me just interrupt there because we're running out of time. Professor, how do you react to that? 
Um, I think we have a different interpretation of the study we commissioned. Um, you're absolutely right, there was a link. It wasn't a causal link, and therefore I think it would be a, a step too far to introduce legislation just on the basis of a link that's actually also associated with an increase in transplant uh, staff, transplant beds, an increase in public engagement, consistent engagement, uh, positive stories about organ donation, which, let's face it, in this country we rarely have, except for this radio station, which has been absolutely fantastic in profiling organ donation. Very few sections of the media regularly engage with the public. Well, it's an, it's an important thing. Donation. I think it's an important thing, and it's an important discussion to have. Uh, Doctor, we're running out of time. 30 seconds. Well, as I said, you cannot prove causation, so you're setting a hurdle that you can never meet. But what is clear is that in those countries uh, that, uh, that have an opt-out system, there is broad public support for it. I think the Welsh are doing the right thing. And we have failed in this country to increase the number of cadaveric, that's, that's donations after death, organ transplants, in any significant step change way, despite the other recommendations of his group. OK, Doctor, we have to end it there. It's Dr Harris uh, and Professor Randauer. Uh, it's, a, it's a big discussion, isn't it? It's an important thing. Of course you have to talk about it. Because we're all going to die. Sorry to break the news to you, but that's going to happen. Oh, you didn't know? Well, you do now. Uh, and it's something important we can do. As I've said, they can take anything they want from me, and I've said it to my family. Listen, you help yourselves. Go nuts! <laughs> if, if that would help, you can have those as well. I don't know. Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio, 803. Another hour of this nonsense. I can only apologise. Jonathan will be on at nine, though. The radio gets good around them. What am I talking about? It's excellent now. Coming up in the last hour of the show, why the government wants to recruit one million people to become dementia friends. I'll be speaking to Care Minister Norman Lamb to find out more. Oscar the Asbo Cat from Wingrave is terrorising dogs and neighbours. Reporter Justin Dealey has tracked down the owner. Do your neighbours' cats drive you mad? And is MP for beds, uh, mid-beds, sorry, Nadine Doris, going to be the most unpopular reality contestant ever? It's looking that way. 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. We've been talking about this all morning. The government wants you to consider becoming a dementia friend, someone who can spot signs of the illness and help to train sufferers. Uh, they are planning to train a million people by 2015. It's part of plans to raise awareness of the condition, which affects nearly 700,000 people. Prime Minister David Cameron has said dementia is a national crisis and awareness of it is shockingly low. The idea is to help make communities and everyday places like supermarkets, places like that, more accessible to people with the condition. Well, the Care and Support Minister, Norman Lamb, joins me now. Good morning, Minister. Morning, Ian. Is this another way for the public to, to fill in the gaps after the budget cuts? <laughs> Good try. No, I think in, in tackling uh, this enormous challenge of dementia, incidentally, we've got 670,000 people now with dementia. We're expecting that to double uh, within the next 30 years. S government has a critical role to play, so we're doubling the amount of funding for research, for example. We've got a fund for £50 million to adapt wards and care homes uh, to make them more dementia-friendly. The whole host of different things that we're doing, but we also have to recognise that the whole of society 
society has to understand this condition much better and we all have a part to play and uh, I would encourage anyone who uh, is interested in playing a part in this to uh, register at their interest. You can do that incidentally by going to dementiafriends or one word dot org dot uk or just texting the word friend to 88080. If I send that text what happens? What, What will I get? You get training, uh, so you uh, understand the condition and uh, the, the signs, uh, so that perhaps you might have a neighbour who you think is uh, s- displaying the early signs of dementia. You might be able to encourage them to go along to their doctor to get a diagnosis. Early diagnosis can make a real difference. Uh, you might be a supermarket uh, worker and you might be working at the till, so you spot someone who's struggling with their change or with their PIN number. You don't get impatient with them. You give them more mm. time. You help them. In every sort of single way in our lives, we can make a difference to people with dementia. And given that it's such a challenge, I think the idea of uh, raising awareness in this uh, really quite significant way can make a real difference. Uh, my granddad had this, and I, it, it's a horrible condition. It and is, I think yeah. that, uh, that awareness, of course, does have to be erased, uh, to, to be raised. But do you really think you're going to get that many people taking this up? Because most people are, are at home going, yeah, you know, whatever, I can't be bothered. Well, it doesn't take much time. You could, you can go along for an hour's training session. Uh, now, in, in that time, you, you will get to understand much more about the condition and give, be given guidance about how you can play a part. This is not a big time commitment. It's just being aware of the condition and how when you spot it or when you spot someone perhaps in distress, perhaps on a bus who has forgotten where to get off, you can just assist them to get, to their, get back to their home. And I think, you know, if we can get people signing up, uh, making their commitment to make a difference uh, in a very small but significant way, then I think we can really help people with dementia. Norman, how much is it costing? Well, the government is putting £2.4 million into the whole project, working very closely with the Alzheimer's Society. But because this is about people volunteering, giving of themselves to try to make a difference, the cost is actually very low, but the impact could be very high. OK, Norman Lamb, thank you very much indeed. That's uh, uh, Norman Lamb, who is uh, the uh, Care and Support Minister talking about this. We can now go to Anna Selby, sorry, who runs the Milton Keynes Community Health Service. Good morning, Anna. Morning, Ian. You heard what Norman had to say there. What did you make of that? Well, I think that um, it's, it's good. I think we have to be positive about the, um, the message with regards to supporting understanding and raising awareness and changing public attitude. I think that's to be welcomed. We do know that dementia is a significant problem. But also, living with dementia can still be satisfying and fulfilling for people and that we try and support in- independent living as far as possible. Therefore, having that awareness out there in the community has got to be a good thing. This, the, the independent living is, is not part of that just to save a bit of money. I can understand totally about giving people as much freedom and uh, uh, being able to stay at home as, uh, when they want, but it is expensive, people going into care, isn't it? It's part of that saving money. Oh, Ian, we're talking about people's lives here, aren't we? We're talking about living lives that are meaningful and making sure that people have the most comfortable lives that they can. Uh, going into care isn't always an, is sometimes a necessary part of the, the, the process, but people have a right to, to maintain their independence for as long as possible, and we also know that people's um, strategies for coping are much better in their own familiar environment. But it's not always easy, is it, on the per- if, if there's a married couple and, and, and the wife is looking after the husband and he's, he's out Alzheimer's or, or dementia is, is particularly bad. It, it's not easy on her, is it? 
But the whole process isn't easy on anybody, and I think that's why raising awareness in the general population is absolutely crucial, so that carers and families, and also people who suffer dementia themselves, have the right level of support that they need. Absolutely, support for carers is essential. What would you say to those those spouses who, who are struggling to cope, and who do need more help, uh, and perhaps do need the, their partner to go into care? Well, I think they need to talk to people who can help them make those decisions. I think that those are decisions that are personal to people and have to be born out of what's happening and what the need is at the time. I think that it's a very difficult decision to make, but sometimes it has to be made. Mm. But there are different ways of providing care to people these days, and this is one of the things I'd really like to see with um, the, the, the next drive-in um, supporting people with dementia. You know, are different ways of managing uh, um, places for people to live for example here in milton Keynes, we've got a a new development which enables people to stay together as a couple whilst they're receiving sheltered accommodation and extra care mm. there's a, you know lots of steps along the pathway in order to support people and also p- care for people at home to enable carers some respite do you think the public will take this up and and, and will get involved with this I think so. I, I mean, I've recently we've seen some fairly high-profile dementia sufferers outing themselves, if you like, haven't we? People like Terry Pratchett. I think there's a much better awareness. I'd like to see, um, you know, uh, an ongoing um, awareness raising with regards to all types of mental health problems, but dementia particularly, I think, the, the public are becoming more aware of. And uh, very quickly, you, you're worried about your neighbour, you're worried about the, the person over the road, you think that possibly they've got a problem. W- what should you do? I think the, your first your first protocol is to talk to them and understand what's happening to them. It can be very frightening frightening experience when you first start to lose your memory. We wouldn't want people to be um, frightened by what's happening. I think you talk to them, you talk to their carers, you support them in developing some strategies and you talk to them about getting to the GP, trying to get some support early on from the people that can then open the doors. Anna Selby, thank you very much. She runs the Milton Keynes Community Health Service. The BBC in beds, hearts and bucks. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. You can give us a call and let us know your views on that. 08459 455 555. Carol's in Hitching. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. Uh, Has dementia affected your life in any way? Well, yes, it's affected my life in quite a large way. Um, I have it in my family with my uh, mother-in-law, who is in the final stages, unfortunately, of dementia and is in a care home in London. Mm. And my father, who is 90, started showing the signs of dementia, well, quite early on, but more profoundly in 2011, Mm. and then had to return from Spain, where he was living for 30 years, um to uh, England because of the dementia and uh, start, was living with me for a year. And, how, did you, um, how did you find that, living with him? Well, it was hard. He had nowhere else to go because yeah. he was living in Spain and he had to come back. And um, he, was, he was aware that he was poorly, was he? And, no, and, uh, no. No, okay. people aren't. You right, know, yeah. He isn't, wasn't really, no. Not at all aware of it. Mm. Um, and um, it was, it just... It was, I didn't. Expe- I didn't know. I didn't expect it to sort of deteriorate so quickly, because it, it deteriorated from sort of slight memory loss to really not being able to cope with anything, not not eating and uh, not making. You know, sort of putting food together properly or knowing what you're eating. Um, personal care. It was really, really difficult. This scheme that the government are introducing, this mm. Dementia Friends, do you think mm. it's a good idea? I think it's an excellent idea. I've registered my interest straight away. I heard about it this morning on the radio, and I registered my interest straight away on my iPad. Mm. And I'm really, really keen to raise awareness of dementia. I'm already um, being supported by the Alzheimer's uh, Society in my own town. 
I see. I think it's quite a good idea. I'm trying to be all cynical about it. I, I, I can't because I do think it's a good <laughs> idea, and awareness does need to be raised. Well, my worry is that mm. people in their twenties, in their thirties, maybe even their forties, will go, "Oh, it's listen, it's an old person's disease. It's nothing to do with me. Why should I be bothered?" Well, I mean, it's not actually an old person's disease no, necessarily. Of not, no. I mean, it can hit people very, very early on, mm. and it can be caused by um, not just by uh, aging, but it can be caused by traumatic brain um, injury as well. So, say you've been knocked down mm. or hurt by a car, you can get dementia through uh, injury as well. It's not just uh, a disease of age. It is a very sad... My, my granddad had it, as I've said before, and one of the saddest things was he said to my nan, he said, uh, Joan, yeah. something's wrong with me, and I, I don't quite know what it is. Uh, and that was just heartbreaking. Well, the he, thing is, it affects uh, more people than you think. Yeah. Everybody has been... You speak to many people, you know, have, I know a lot of people get cancer and things like that, but loads of people are touched by dementia mm. in their families. Carol, listen, I appreciate uh, you calling up. Carolyn Hitchin there, sharing her story. Thank you for that. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. Uh, Jez in High Wycombe. Ironing. Talking about ironing. There's no point in ironing, is there? What, what about a, what, talking about quantum leaps in subjects? So we have to do it sometimes. At last, someone who shares my religion. Ironing is pointless and boring. Can't iron, won't iron. Never have, never will. Wash clothes, tumble dry, or hang on hangers in an airing cupboard. Let creases drop out. As for washing new stuff, this is we heard that my, my producer's husband. He, he gets new clothes. He washes them before he wears them. What? Jez carries on. What's the point? Never have, though my wife insists on doing so. It's more common than we thought. Re-inflitic. I wash bedding when I first buy it because it always stinks of the shop, and I ain't sleeping with that smell. And Sue says on the email, we always wash our crockery and kitchen bits before use. Imagine taking a sip from a cup that someone has sneezed all over. Or body waste germs from those who handle things after visiting the toilet and not washing their hands. Of course you should wash these things. You're all weird. It's Jonathan Vernon Smith. Here I am. We're speaking a little bit stilted because we are being filmed for this <laughs> bit. So normally, um, during that the, the trail that we play there for Nick Coffer, Jonathan would be being libelous and slanderous about many of the celebrities that live uh, in the Beds, Hearts and Bucks areas. You would be. You would be v- being very, very rude. <laughs> it's true. Um, about many well-known people. Yes. Um, I, I can't even begin to say what their names are because we all get in trouble now. But because <laughs> we're being filmed, you've been on bestest, bestest behaviour. I have, yes. Which is great. Yes, you won't find anything naughty slipping out of my lips. Uh, <laughs> for goodness sakes, man. <laughs> what? Listen, keep that filth for your show. By the way, you yes. realise a week ago today, we were, uh, bang, bang, shooting. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah. Here he comes. Move to him. Stay with him. Bang. Oh, look at it! <laughs> yes! <laughs> That's oh. you! I'm trying to kill her. Come on. <laughs> you feeling good? You, you hit it. I'm feeling really butch. I'm really butch. I've still got my eye patch next to my bed. <laughs> Do you, my bedside camera. Do you use it in the bedroom? <laughs> Do you? <laughs> no, I know. Let's I know. role play. I'll be a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm always impressed by those that do role-play. Because at what point do you suggest... Hello, I, it's, it's uh, 19 minutes past 8 oh, in the morning. Oh, thank you. I will stop there. Yeah. I meant, like, you know, just games and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'll stop there. Yes, What's, please do, because I've got very serious phone-in. Very serious. OK, can you go into I'm, it? You I'm hoping it's going to be uh, informative as well. You know these PCC elections? No, what are they? Uh, well, one week 
from today, we're being asked to vote on what will be the biggest shake-up of policing oh. in the last 50 years. Fifteen candidates have put their names forward to be the police and crime commissioners for the Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire and Thames Valley forces. PCCs, if you're interested, yes. will have the power to set police force priorities, oversee its budget, as well as hire and fire the chief constable. Oh, blimey. You're not glazing over yet, are you? Mm. Uh, they'll hold our I'm police... I genuinely find this quite interesting, okay. actually. They'll hold our police forces to account for delivering the kind of service we want to see. They'll bring a public voice to policing, but won't change the day-to-day -day running of our police forces, or at least they're not supposed to. Well, from nine this morning... And, look, there have been loads of programmes on telling people about the differences between what we've got now and these new elected people. Yeah. To be honest, it's all a bit complicated. Uh, and, you know, we could go on and on about it, but whether or not people have a view, I don't know. From nine... What I want us to do, let's give these candidates some ideas. <laughs> I want to know <laughs> from you, laughing at that. Sorry. what could the police do better where you live? These candidates are all going to be, one of them, in, in Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire and in Thames Valley. They are going to be elected to be, in effect, in charge of our police forces. Yeah, okay. So what do we want them to get our police to do okay, better? kind of... Oh eight four five up a little bit. It's four double five five double five from nine. I want your views. If you've yeah. been a victim of of crime, uh, okay. if you are a retired Just police officer, like we're living your show in real time. I want your view. What could the police do better where you faster. live? It just feels like you're doing your whole show. You've, you're, you've got three hours to do this at nine, so well, just... Look, I've got, a, uh, I've got a tough phone now. I won't, I won't lie to you, this is going to be a tough one today. I need some help. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> you've yeah. just helped. I just, the, the whole time you were doing that, I was imagining you dressed up as a pirate. <laughs> 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 Make me walk the plank, sir. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. You can leave now. Oh, God. There we go. Uh, always worth a listen. Uh, Jonathan Vernon-Smith, he will be on at nine o'clock. And uh, thanks uh, to uh, a member of my team for filming that complete and utter nonsense. Across beds, hearts and bucks, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, we've been speaking about this this morning. An abortion clinic in Milton Keynes says protesters have been intimidating and causing distress to women using the service. The 40 Days for Life group organised the 40-day protest at the British uh, Pregnancy Advice Service Clinic in Milton Keynes. Earlier on, I spoke to Claire Murphy from BPAS and the organiser of the campaign outside the clinic, Andy Burton. I've got a client's comment form um, in front of me. So this is, this is a, a comment a woman has, has, has written down after having having to, to make her way past these people. And she says, I found their presence intimidating, their signs degrading, and their attitudes draconian. No woman, regardless of their age or reason for attending this clinic, should have to put up with them being there. And I think, basically, that kind of pretty much encapsulates how many women felt about having to make their way past these people. Andy, you're intimidating women. Yeah, I, I find it very funny that um, Claire says that that's um, a general a general feeling when she only had one response. Um, I've actually got a response here and from I one of our volunteers. I, had, I didn't say I had one response. I said that response encapsulated how many women felt by seeing you there outside a clinic. Well, had your say, Claire. Please let me have mine. Um, I've got a response here from one of our volunteers, and we've got many such amazing feedback from people. It says, Dear Andy, on Wednesday outside the Acorn House Abortion Clinic, a young lady passed us several times, then returned to join us in prayer and was reduced to tears. 
In time, she shared her story with us. It was the placard that she noticed, which clearly encouraged her to, t- to join us. But Andy, Andy, we it have was- an example. We have an example from from Claire there uh, that she's read out. It's on her comments form, and she says this is representative of, of a lot of other people that a woman felt intimidated. Well, no, it's their conscience that intimidates people, Andy, not our peaceful prayer. I, I will presence. put this to you one more time, okay? It wasn't her conscience. She said specifically it was your presence that intimidated her. If I was trying to kill a child, I wouldn't. I would like to do it in private, like Claire says. I wouldn't want anyone around to see me do that. It's the most wicked thing you can do to kill your own child. Not only are we coming back twice next year to do it, but we're also going to be there uh, next week and the week after. We're going to do start with one day per week. It's been such a success. Strong views there, uh, and if you've got an opinion on that, oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. I've got a few texts we'll do in a second, but before that, uh, I want to speak to Dave from Dunstable. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. Uh, you had the discussion uh, earlier on. W- w- what do you make of it? What are your views on it? I think he's narrow-minded, and I think he's a hypocrite. To be honest, um, I unfortunately had a twelve-year-old daughter between twelve and sixteen. I had to have her uh, pregnancy terminated on three separate occasions, uh, and I have no conscience about it. I feel I did the right thing for my daughter at the time. She had an abortion at the age of 12? Yep, yep. She was um, a wayward child, um, and I didn't have much control over her because I was I was in an occupation. I was away a lot. I used to come back to a situation, as it were, and have to deal with it. Um, as a dad, and I'm, I'm a dad, I'm a dad of boys, but uh, uh, you find out your 12-year-old daughter is pregnant, Dave. How did that make you feel? Um, pretty angry. Um, I was angry on three counts. I was ang- angry that um, she'd been taken advantage of by uh, on each occasion an older boy. Um, on each occasion, a different older boy, which makes it sound even worse. Um, the fact that my uh, then-wife wasn't able to, to deal with it, and it was my responsibility at the end of the day to deal with it. Um, and the law, the law didn't seem to be able to do anything about the people who um, were responsible for these actions. Uh, can, can, I, can I speak freely, Dave? Can I put forward an opinion that I, I don't necessarily have, but some people might have? Uh, th- th- yeah. If your daughter was getting pregnant three times between the age of 12 and 16, there are some people who might say that that shows signs of bad parenting. It gets worse. She she was taken into care after the first pregnancy, and the other two pregnancies occurred while she was in the care of the social services with um, a foster parent. Mm. Wow. And uh, having an abortion, it, it, it's not an easy thing. Physically, it is very demanding on, on the, the woman, or in your case, the girl that has it done. Were you not worried that, that, that there might be after There is effects? a long-term problem. Well, there is an artifact. There is a long-term problem. Um, she, she now is. I think description is barren. She can't have children. But um, because of her state of mind, which started back then and is still present now, she, 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 she wouldn't make a make a good a good, uh, a good parent in any case. How how old is she now, Dave? Thirty-two. And uh, how do you? So this happened a long time ago. How do you begin to rebuild life as a family after going through that? Didn't I? I was separated from my wife within uh, a matter of months. Um, the same daughter was t- taken in, 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 into care, and uh, as such, I, I haven't seen my daughter since nineteen ninety-nine. I've not seen her for a very long time. I, I, I'm, I'm informed of how she's getting along, but um, it's, 
I've not been able to, to have a relationship it, with her. It, it, I couldn't be honest. Is that your choice not to not to see her? After a while, yeah. Uh, drug addiction and prostitution sort of entered her life, and it was uh, the people who were involved in her life. They they, they were as, as destructive as she was. So, Bringing it back to what we were talking about earlier on, the, the, the protest, yeah. the protest uh, outside the abortion clinic, uh, and Andy Burton, who, the, the Christian organiser of the group, what would your message be to someone like that? Um, think of the wider implications. I, in my view, it's, it's, it's not a child you're destroying, it's somebody along the way made the decision that um, child destruction occurred at a certain point during a, during a pregnancy. Before that point, it, it's, it's not a child, so... As far as I'm concerned, uh, I have to agree with the medical profession and the law. You know, you, you're not you're not terminating a baby; you're terminating something which is a fetus, which is intention. Dave, I really appreciate your honesty this morning. Mm, quite hard, but hey. Yeah, I, of course it is. Thank you very much, Dave from Dunstable. Well, there's a story, huh? We got some texts on that uh, abortion, and these these are the texts that have come in, and we're not singling them out to present one point of view or another. Richard and Flittick, uh, abortion protests should be at Parliament, not aimed at vulnerable women. Shame on those protesters. Ree says, having a baby is painful enough, let alone having a baby that is a result of rape. Andy is talking like an idiot. I don't agree with abortion, but sometimes it's best for all concerned. Um, an anonymous text, Andy needs to mind his own business. He doesn't know people's circumstances. From someone who had a termination on medical grounds 39 years ago. And Chris and Amish, can I say what a fool that Andy sounds? How can he justify intimidating women who are already going through a distressful time and say he's just pricking their conscience? That's Chris in Amish. And those are, are the texts we've had in. We've not selected them. You know, if anybody wants to text in in the last half an hour in support of Andy, then you can. 81333, starting your text 3CR. You can give us a call, of course. Uh, and it never fails to amaze me how um, honest and open people are. On, uh, on shows like this, so thank you for that. 08459 455 555 is the phone number. 08459 455 555 is the telephone number if you want to give us a call about that or about any of the other things we're talking about this morning. On FM, AM and online, BBC Three Counties Radio. It's 8.32. It's normally at this point in the show that I um, uh, relent <clears throat> and decide, yes, I am going to go to the Greasy Spoon and I am going to get a fried egg sandwich. Every day I'm like, I'm not going to do it today. Not gonna, oh, 8.32, I'm going to get a fried egg sandwich. Uh, coming up in the last half an hour of the show, uh, Naughty Cats and Nadine Doris. Uh, and we've been talking this morning about um, opting in or opting out of uh, don- uh, donors, um, organs, that's it, organ donation, that's it, I can't think what I was talking about for a second. And we've said that some people are a bit funny. My wife is keen for everything to go, apart from her eyes. And uh, my member of the team here ag- agrees as well. Uh, and it's odd, isn't it? You, you, um, you become attached to them, your eyes, of course you're attached to them. Uh, but Emma J. Austin has, has tweeted me, Ian, I only have the sight I have due to donated corneas. I urge people to donate eyes. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it incredible? You know, and I only found out recently that you can donate eyes. You know, the eyes can be used. And there's a, a perfect example of, of, uh, of exactly what can be achieved through donation. So thank you for that, Emma. Now, a naughty cat has been terrorising neighbours and dogs in Wingrave. It's, it's more than naughty. It's blooming vicious, this thing. Oscar is a Turkish van, which has been nicknamed Asbocat. 
Well, we've sent out uh, BBC Three Counties cat correspondent Justin Dealey out, and he's managed to track the owner, Caroline Hughes. Caroline, it's got to be said, everyone in the village is talking about Oscar, your cat, uh, hearing all sorts of reports. Can you confirm, has he actually attacked a human being? Forget about chickens and dogs. Has he attacked a human being before? Um, Well, I understand that when he was in um, Tom's house... Um, Tom basically tried to get him rid of him out of the house and Oscar, I think, was quite scared and bit him and scratched him quite badly. And that is the only incident that I'm aware of that Oscar's actually physically attacked anybody. So this is Tom, your neighbour? This is Tom, my neighbour, yeah. And was he in hospital for a week? I, I understand so. I don't know the details. Um, I, that's what I was told. But okay. yeah. Well, Oscar's now back. He's been away for three weeks or so. Just how pleased are you to get him back? Well, I'm incredibly pleased. I mean, when he went missing, um, it was just really the worst, worst couple of weeks. Um, I think with any cat owner, when your cat disappears, um, you have absolutely no idea where they are and you've no idea what's happened to them, particularly um, as I knew that Oscar was a bit of a problem to some people in the village. Um, I was a little bit worried about that. But um, the village, I have to say, were fantastic. There was um, quite a lot of people who came out and helped me to search for Oscar um, and out in the fields and looking for him just in case he'd been caught by a fox or anything like that. So um, it, it's really not been quite as bad as... as as it's been made out and a lot of people in the village do really love Oscar quite a lot okay you've got three cats here three of them practically identical they're all under house arrest you can't let them out tell us why well there's a little, just a little bit too much publicity and you know Oscar's been painted as, as the um, as the lion of Wingrave um, and there's a vicious animal that's out there basically attacking children and dogs which is absolutely not true and as a result of that I really am worried about his safety the other two cats because they're, they're very similar um, they could easily be mistaken for Oscar so all three cats have to be in the house but in saying that, he has attacked a human being. You as the owner, you, you mustn't feel great about that, surely? Oh, absolutely not. And I, you know, I, I knew that Oscar was causing a bit of a problem, but he was encouraged into that house for a period of time before he was then evicted from the house. And so I can imagine, you know, you can't really encourage a cat into the house and then expect them to suddenly leave when it suits you because cats are creatures of habit. So, um, but absolutely um, mortified that he that he hurt Tom if that if that did happen, um, and certainly have been doing everything I can to try to minimise. The, the effects of Oscar while he's been out and about, including um, helping to install a cat flap into that house, which um, reads the microchips, and uh, also trying to limit the hours that Oscar's outside. Um, unfortunately, that all doesn't seem to really have worked, so I'm now looking at moving house to a, a garden where I can secure properly. And so keep you've had enough. Moving. You're moving away because of this cat situation. It's got that bad. It's been going on for that long. You're simply moving away. You can't take it anymore. It's, it's not so much that um, I think it's got so bad. It's more that I'm, I'm worried about him, and I'm, I'm constantly worried about what the cats are doing, which means you can't really leave them for any length of time. You can't really go away for the weekend. So I want to, to be in an environment where I can make sure I know where he is and what he's up to. He'll have a very nice life because a nice big garden somewhere um, where we'll build him lots of nice things to climb on and, mm. and he'll have a good life because I don't believe in indoor cats. You've heard some of the reaction this morning. You're saying to me these people are jumping on the bandwagon looking for their five minutes of fame. We're hearing that, that some people in the village have got water pistols and other weapons as well. What is your message to them this morning? If your cat does escape and you have got three identical cats here, they may think it's Oscar and they come face to face with him. They may be thinking about harming him. What is your message to them? And be brutally honest. Oh, you know what? He's a cat and he just happens to be the king cat in the area. And if it's not going to be him, it'll be another cat when he leaves. So, you know, at the end of the day, he's, he is 
an, an animal and he's a pet and he's very much loved, not just by me but from by the whole family and lots of other people in the village. Um, if you see him, he's not vicious, but if you do try and handle him roughly, he's not used to that, so he might scratch you, but you can expect that with any cat when you pick them up. Um, just be nice to Oscar and he'll be nice to you. And if he really is causing you a problem, then you know I, I invite any of my neighbours just to give me a call and I'll come and get him. I work from home most of the time, so um, all they need to do is, is pick up the phone and I will come and bring him back in. Well, if you want to see pictures of uh, the cat, go to facebook.com forward slash bbc3cr. Well, Justin uh, has been in Wingrave all morning. You've moved out a little bit now, Justin. Well, 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 tell us more about this cat. Oh, Justin, where are you? Justin? Justin? Justin is gone. We've lost Justin Daly, unfortunately. We'll try and get him back. In the meantime, though, we can speak to Dr June McNicholas, who's a pet psychologist, and joins me now. Good morning, Doctor. Good morning. What can be done with an aggressive cat? Well, it's much more unusual to hear about aggressive cats than it is, say, aggressive dogs. Mm. Um, One of the first things to do, if it really is a problem and you think it is a little bit more than just being the king cat on, on your street, as it were, is probably the first call is to make sure that you've got your vet's opinion to, to see that there's actually nothing physically wrong that causes extreme aggression. And here I am talking about a cat that just attacks dogs, other cats, people for what appears to be no particular reason. And then the next best advice really is to get in touch with one of your local pet behaviour counsellors. Um, who will look into the cat's history, what triggers the behaviour, that sort of thing. So to try and get to the root of why it's doing it and how it can be stopped. Well, is there, is there anything, how do, you, how do you stop it? You don't lie it on a couch and have, like, hour-long sessions with it or something, do you? What, what, what can you do? If, if this behaviour is so ingrained, can you change it? Yes, you can. Um, and, as I say, a pet behaviour counsellor could probably give uh, an awful lot of good advice on that. Um, they would look into the history. They would look and see what kind of behaviour triggers that behaviour in the cat. Um, I mean, I have come across cats that actually just lie under hedges and attack anything that moves. Oh, blimey. Um, yeah, which is a little bit alarming. Um, and I, I, there's only been a few cases that not I know of and I'm not a pet behaviour counsellor so I'm not sort of no. <laughs> advertising that profession um, but as I say one of the first things I would do if it was worryingly aggressive is to get a vet's opinion um, make sure there is nothing physically yeah. wrong with the animal before you start thinking about sort of radical behaviour changes. It's interesting isn't it our, our perception because if this were a dog we would be saying hang this thing put it down get rid oh, of it. A- but, absolutely. But, but it's, it's because it's a cat oh it's just no. Oh, it's a silly cat that's scratching people. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I think because we're very ingrained in the media. I mean, for the last 20, 30 years, we've had devil dogs of all sorts of descriptions, whether it was the German Shepherds, the Dobermans, the Rottweilers, and now the Staffies. Um, and, of course, dogs can inflict a great deal of damage, but it shouldn't... I mean, aggression can, af- can affect any species of animal. Mm. One of my colleagues is actually quite experienced in aggressive rabbits. Excuse me? Yes. Oh, rabbits I, are vicious little so-and-sos, they, aren't they? They can be. Yeah, yes, they're they horrible. I, I have seen one that's chased a sheepdog across the field and, yes. gro- and it growled. Yeah. <laughs> the th- I, I got bitten by a rabbit at a very young age. I, I, I dared to put my hand into a rabbit hutch to feed it. I'm never doing that again. Get rid of all rabbits. Well, no, rabbits are great fun and, and a lot of people have a lot of pleasure out of pet rabbits. Um, but again, it, it's just really to say that aggression can... Ex- uh, can 
appear in, in most species. It's when it's out of control and probably not easily explained. That's when you really need to think about either getting a vet's opinion about physical condition, because there are physical conditions that can make animals aggressive. Oscar's under house arrest. Is that fair, Doctor? Um, I think for the time being, while we get to the root of his problem, um, if there have been complaints, I mean, bless him, I do have a certain amount of sympathy with Oscar, I have to say. He sounds as though he's a much-loved pet. He's just probably a, a little bit over the top. Mm. Um, but we do have to remember that actually... Um, People can be seriously injured by cats. Yes. Not through the extent of the injury, but by bacteria in the mouth with a bite or, or claws with a scratch that can actually cause quite serious illnesses in some people if that cat is affected. And we simply don't know until somebody's been bitten or scratched. Oh, blimey. Dr. Jim McNicholas, excuse me, pet psychologist. Thank you very much indeed. Across beds, hearts and bucks, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. Here we go. Nick Coffer. Uh, today, midday until three o'clock, he's talking to Joe Lawrence. Joe is a plumber. She's a lady plumber. And she's passionate about getting more ladies into plumbing. Also, financial advisor Rory Joseph returns to answer your money questions. And Nick, here's the story of Leavesden Hospital in Hertfordshire. Martin Brooks talks spooky goings on and the possibility that Jack the Ripper may have been buried in the mental asylum's grounds. There you go. I've said it. Nick Coffer at midday, always worth a listen. Uh, don't forget, Jonathan Vernon-Smith will be on at nine o'clock this morning uh, talking about the PCC, the Police and Crime Commissioners. Uh, if you want to have a say on that, it's, it's interesting, because, let's be honest, not that many people are bothered. You kind of should be, shouldn't you? It's quite important. He's asking this morning, what, what, what do you want the police to do? C- come up with some suggestions. You can email him now, uh, 3cr at bbc.co.uk. And um, they, they will be forwarded on to him. Now, I'm looking at the lineup for um, uh, the I'm a Celebrity, and we're going to be talking about Nadine Doris in a little bit. Possibly the most unpopular reality TV contestant of all time. She's not even, the show's not even started yet. It starts Sunday night, I think. I do like, I do like it. I mean, it's rubbish, but it's brilliant, isn't it? Uh, I don't know who most of these people are. I don't think I'm meant to know. Eric Bristow, the crafty Cockney. Linda Robson, the bird of a feather. And Brian Connolly, the has-been. They're in there. Uh, and, and they're good names. Charlie Brooks, she's the tarty one from EastEnders. Ashley Roberts, not a clue. David Hay is a boxer. Colin Baker, the second worst Doctor Who of all time. Uh, Hugo Taylor, not a clue. Uh, oh, actually, I, you, I do know who most of them are. Helen Flanagan, she was um, in, in Coronation Street. Uh, and the Dean Doris, she was an MP. Remember her? Remember when she was the MP for Mid-Beds? Do you remember that? And there was all that controversy because she did that programme and then she got the boot. (laughs) Uh, We'll be talking about her later on. It's possible that Nadine Doris is the most unpopular reality TV show contestant of all time. Beds, hearts and bugs, weather. BBC Three Counties Radio. (laughs) Hello, thanks very much. Good morning What are you giggling for, Elizabeth? What's up? What's going on now? Are you being tickled or something? No, I always giggle because I always go in the wrong place because of the sting. (laughs) I know. Excuse me. Well, let's let's hope things get better and away you go. The sting being the, the Radio music behind oh, I see, me, right, that I is, understand, of course, you know, right, yes. Explanation there. That's the forecast for now. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. She's very giggly this morning, I like that.
Jonathan Vernon Smith. Weekday mornings from oh. nine on BBC Three Counties Radio. <laughs> oh, I, I laughed out loud to myself at that trial. <laughs> Always worth a listen. JVS at nine o'clock. It's, it's, it's cracking radio. Now, the mid-beds MP Nadine Doris has been confirmed as a contestant on ITV's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. She's the first serving MP to appear. She'll be joined uh, by, amongst others, Birds of a Feather actress Linda Robson and the second worst Doctor Who of all time, David... Uh, not David, eh? he's the boxer, Colin Baker. But is Nadine Doris possibly the most unpopular reality TV contestant ever? Rupert Adams is from William Hills. Good morning, Rupert. Good morning. Is she the most unpopular contestant ever? So far. <laughs> but how do you know that? Well, what we, what we did is obviously we just look at the book. I mean, we, we put her in as a 20 to 1 outsider, which is, is a fairly large price. So obviously if you put one quid on, you win 20. And for the first 24 hours, we took not one single bet on wow. her. And we are now, we're now up to seven. I checked about ten minutes ago. What, nationwide? Nationwide. Uh, this is both in the shops, on the telephone, and on the internet. There's You've literally had no seven one bets on her? We had a total of seven. The biggest is ten quid. <laughs> and I was rather hoping one of them was going to be from an MP, but I couldn't see any from the MPs so far. <laughs> OK, well, who is, who's proving the most popular, then? Oh, uh, without doubt, Brian Connolly. Yeah. He is absolutely... He started off as an eight-to-one, sort of, uh, a maybe. Uh, he's now three-to-one favourite. I think it's over 60% is on him and it's, he's an interesting one because obviously he's been off the radar for a bit mm. um, but in his day uh, he was certainly the highest paid Big TV star. guy yeah absolutely and I, I think he'll have a real following he's a, a sort of Daniel O'Donnell type character who's gonna I have... kind of wonder where it went wrong for him because he was a huge star Big, he was Mr Saturday Night and then he disappeared somewhere someone made a wrong decision in his career didn't they I think you're right I mean I, I've been doing quite a lot of research on him uh, when we were d- putting the prices together for, for it and it, he went from, as you say, being the top guy to doing panto uh, overnight, almost. Hey, listen, Um, that that panto pays quite good, though. Well, it it pays quite good, but not as good as the highest paid man in television, which he was at one point. Why do you think Nadine (laughs) is, is so disliked? Well, I, I think that I think she's. It was very unexpected. Um, I think that they've they've done a brilliant job, the organisers, getting her along. Mm. Um, well, it, they've it, got the press out of it and the complete national coverage for t- two days solid. Exactly, and uh, so on that front, they've done brilliantly. I mean, the, the reality is, despite the fact that we go out there and actually vote for our MPs to get them in place, we do like to see them uh, in a bit of pain. We do like them to to actually earn their money and all those sort of things. So this goes against her decision to go to the jungle. Goes against quite a lot of principles for a lot of us. So. Uh, you can imagine that she's uh, going to be certainly a figure of, uh, of uh, well, of fun, perhaps. One of the good things about I'm a Celebrity, in Big Brother, the people that uh, are irritating and annoying that we should keep in, they get booted out straight away. Yeah. With I'm a Celebrity, if people don't like you, you can make it right to the end, can't you? Because they <laughs> want to see you suffer. Exactly. I mean, we're, we're certainly, we've got her as the red-hot favourite to do the first Bush Tucker trial. I think it's two to one now. Uh, and I think that, that you can pretty well say that's nailed on because uh, the type of person who will want to see her do, do the Bush Tucker trial can certainly afford to phone in and vote and they'll be they'll be hammering the phones to make sure she's the first person in 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 some coffin some awful place covered in rats wouldn't um, it be interesting to get number 10's phone bill after this exactly <laughs> you, you do one you do wonder yeah. uh, I, I, I what do you think is it likely that she's going to get because who was it um mckeith wasn't it jillian mckeith the, yeah. the the poo doctor uh who got voted to do pretty much every mm. trial and in the end she pretended to faint didn't she to get out of it exactly i mean i, th- I think the, the problem the slight problem with the only problem with the, the programme when it comes to these voting for who 
who's going to do the trial is that it's actually, I think, quite a boring experience being in the jungle. Yeah. There's not much to do. And if you're not doing any trials, there really isn't anything to do. Uh, so it makes you very unpopular with everyone else because especially if you're like her and, and is not very good at actually winning stars. So I think you'll find that, that hopefully uh, we won't get fixated with making sure she does every single one because uh, it is it does kind of ruin the programme. But... Jordan, certainly, we found with her, she was there every single one. They couldn't resist the public of forcing her to do one every time, and she was pretty pathetic, too. Uh, and uh, finally, Rupert, what do you think of the lineup this year? Um, I, I, well, in all honesty, I always feel underwhelmed when I first see it. Yeah. Because uh, I think that the early one or two were very good. Um, but at the same time, it's got a bit of everything, and I think with Nadine there, certainly the first few days are going to be good value. Rupert Adams from William Hill, thank you very much. Across beds, hearts and bucks, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. Breaking news in the world of football. Wickham Wanderers have just appointed Gareth Ainsworth as their new manager. Ainsworth took caretaker charge of the club in September after the sacking of Gary Waddock. He joins us from Adams Park. Now, congratulations, Gareth. Good morning, thank you very much. What, thank was, you. Uh, what was your reaction to being officially appointed manager? Um, yeah, yeah, honoured and, and proud to be uh, to be you know appointed as the actual manager now. It's uh, it's been sort of a, a good six weeks, uh, seven weeks that I've uh, I've took the caretaker around. The lads have responded well, so just really pleased that the, the board have kept faith with me and, and the players have showed showed some good stuff, and that's helped get me the job. I was going to ask, was there any um, uh, you know what were the players like? Was was there any resistance to you being manager, or did they kind of welcome you with open arms? No, they've, they've welcomed me with open arms. They're, they're good, good set of lads here. You know, just uh, maybe we've just lost our way a bit, a bit over the, you know, the, the last six months or so, and and that happens sometimes in football. So it's it's a change, and uh, I know them all, which is good and, and bad sometimes. Because they were my mates uh, a few weeks ago, and now I've got to be the manager. But you know, I think that uh, it's time for me. It's a chance for me. I want to, uh, I want to succeed in management. So um, there'll be changes then. Probably, uh, probably won't be able to be as friendly as, uh, as I have oh, been. Oh, you go and, go and crack that whip, for good sake. Think about <laughs> the back time. you got a lengthy injury list. Any sign of that situation improving at all? Yeah, we, uh, we should have a couple back from this weekend. I mean, in 24 years, I've never known anything like this. We've got 12 injuries. I've had 12 injuries before in my career, but never 12 first-team players that could actually walk into a team, you know. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's been a tough one. It really has been a tough one. But one, not for excuses, to look at the positives. We've had some young lads who've come in and done, done wonders and had their chances. So they'll be they'll be uh, chomping at the bit to get back in. So high, high competition here, which is, uh, which is what I want. Is that you're in a little bit of trouble? Let's be honest. Is the squad strong enough to stay in the league? Yeah, without a shadow. You know, it's uh, it's a strong squad. Um, um, the, the manager before me, Gary Waddock, you know, he uh, he signed some good players. And like I say, probably just lost their way a little bit team wise and, and um, belief wise. And, and if I can get that together and put that back in them, we've got no worries about um, staying in this league. And, and I'm very confident in the squad I've got. Okay, what's the plan for the next couple of months? What are you going to be focusing on? Yeah, we, uh, for the last few weeks, we've become more resilient. You know, we've had three clean sheets and, uh, and sort of seven games, which, eight games, which is, which has been, uh, you know, something we haven't achieved for a long time. And, uh, and now we have to concentrate on going forward and attacking better and, and picking open defences, scoring goals and, you know, it's not rocket science, but clean sheets and scoring goals lead to, uh, lead to points and, and getting away from the bottom of the league. How so are you going to uh, celebrate, gonna Gareth, the announcement that you're the manager? What are you going to do? Um, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a down to a northern guy, so I'll be going home and probably having, uh, 
I'm in a nice cup of tea with the missus and saying, right, I've got a job to do, right, let's crack on. It's not, it's not going to be a big celebration. I think I'd uh, like to save that one for the end of the season and uh, and when we've had a successful year, it'd be, uh, it'd be fantastic to, to be able to celebrate properly. But and I've got this, a big, big does, job to do. Does this put the, the rock career on hold for a little while? I know you're a keen guitarist. Rock and roll career is definitely on hold. You know, hey. I've got absolutely no time for that. But, uh, He's focused. You know, you never know. I, I'll, uh, I might be singing in the shower every morning just to keep the voice in trim, but uh, like I say, I've got football to concentrate on now. So, uh, There's an image I'll... you put in my head. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Gareth, listen, congratulations. Best of luck, Gareth Ainsworth, the new Wickham Wanderers uh, manager. Uh, right, a few minutes left. left. Okay, we've got to, some of these texts on uh, the abortion uh, discussion we were having earlier on. Uh, there's been a, a protest pretty much consistently, 40 days, 40 nights, outside uh, a clinic. And um, it got a bit heated when we discussed it. Some texts in. Nigel in Chesham. Another case of the church sticking its nose in where it's not wanted. Christians, I think not. And I'm just reading these out as these come. Uh, I wish Andy was there to prick my consciousness, uh, says Anon. Uh, I don't believe in abortion, but I had one for all the wrong reasons. Regretted it, and what's worse, I've never been able to fall pregnant since. I remain childless. Uh, Rebecca says, I'd just like to say, how dare Andy? He's a man for a start, so we'll never know what it's like to reach the decision to have an abortion. I've never had one, but firmly believe that no woman reaches the decision lightly and that every woman has the right to choose. That's Rebecca. And Sarah, this is an interesting one from Sarah. I participated in the 40 Days for Life prayer vigil at Milton Keynes, and I remember a lady coming to thank us. She had an abortion and had regretted it ever since. The word fetus means young one. At 21 days, the baby's heart is already beating. Ten weeks, everything is formed. We're all fetuses once. BPAS is a business, and one lady was so pressured by them to have an abortion, it took all her strength to walk out. We are there to help. I do not wish for anyone to go through the psychological trauma that most go through. Sarah, thank you for that. I, I should just stress uh, that I'm sure BPAS would say that they have never pressured anyone anybody to have an abortion and i would be very surprised if that were indeed the case even though someone may have said that to you uh, it's a fascinating discussion uh, it's one that no doubt we'll go back to again and again and again as uh, this group is is claiming they will be doing more of these protests no, maybe doing 40 days twice a year and doing various ones at various weekends Oh, I'm peckish now. I forgot to mention this morning, we are still looking for bits of Luton Town FC's pitch. This was Justin Dealey's idea. He's our um, uh, AstroTurf correspondent. Uh, and he reckons that we can get enough of the pitch so that next week, in the BBC Three Counties car park, we can try and recreate the pitch and get a legend of the team to go and play on there. I doubt it very much. I suspect he's going to have egg all over his beautiful face. And it is a beautiful face, isn't it? I'm back tomorrow at six. JBS is up next. Ta-ta. Getting beds, hearts and bugs talking. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. Thank you, Ian.